WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 334. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in a northern Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on the 31st of July, 2018. In today's episode, turtle smuggling, inflatable sex doll flying, pilots fighting, more news, your feedback, and this week's plain tale, The Aluminum Trail. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 334 is ready for push Aluminium. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. And joining me today on this aviation podcasting extravaganza is, from her lakeside studio in South Carolina, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, that's me. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good to see you. Had a nice little uh, break for a week or so there. And glad to be back doing another show today. Good to see you guys. Great to see you as well. And oh, also- it's uh, Nick. It's aluminum. <laughs> and joining us from a studio in England, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and all this aluminium uh, that's going on, and uh, the correct pronunciation is aluminium, and uh, you guys uh, latched on to an incorrect spelling and pronunciation. That was not the uh, discoverer's uh, intent, Uh, and for some reason, you've hung on to it. What is that? I don't know, but we're going to introduce contestant number three or four depending on how you count it, from his hotel studio in Richmond, Virginia. Barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding, pontoon boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello, everybody. Great to be back on uh, another great show of APG. Looking forward to a fun afternoon. We're looking forward to it as well. And I'm as I take a sip of my aluminum canned drink, and speaking of that, we have to add scotch to that list. To what? The list. Bourbon and scotch. Oh, b- bourbon and scotch. Okay, well... Vodka, to... Actually, vodka, bourbon, and scotch connoisseur. All right. I'm just, you know, just crazy. Uh, just heavy drinking uh, captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. <laughs> no, appreciate, appreciative of finer things in life. So, yeah, uh, the plain tale today is uh, uh, was, was spelled aluminium... Uh, the aluminium trail, but I started listening to it 
and it uh, deals with pretty much all American stuff. And so I thought, you know, this should be aluminum because that's the way we pronounce it here. Yeah, and, but you do pronounce it wrong. Let, let me just make that. I, I mean, I can. Uh, there is an argument to be made. Um, I have to agree, but uh, that's just the way we mispronounce it, apparently. But uh, I thought it would be appropriate to. Yeah, it was a, a mistake in Webster's. They latched onto a very early version of the spelling, huh. and even when the correct spelling and pronunciation became uh, common throughout the world, Webster's for some reason didn't change it, and so. Well, in the, 19, the, guy who, 10, the guy who named 20th. it changed it twice over the course of five years. So, uh, yeah, but he uh, he initially uh, decided it was going to be aluminium because uh, he said that all well, the iniums, they're, they're fantastic materials, and I want this to be like those. So, you know, it falls in line. Uh, aluminum, uh, there's, no, you know, there's no history to that. There's no uh, background. There's no, uh, you know, uh, anyway, whatever. Well, he tried. I'll have you know, he tried aluminium first. Yeah, he did. But uh, once he settled on aluminium, you guys refused to follow him, and it was his damned in, in discovery, for heaven's sake. Yeah, that's well. Thanks for joining us today thing. on the um, <laughs> metals, precious metals, Met metal uh, metallurgy show. I don't know that. <laughs> precious metal. Yeah. yeah, it's all Webster's fault. Yeah. Okay. Well, are we are we over that yet? Or are we still no, I don't think so. We'll, we'll bring it back on it some more. Sure. We're going to have a go at potato and uh, tomato before long. <laughs> tomato, potato. <laughs> How about potable? Potable. 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 All right. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, it's uh, good to uh, be back home. Um, we had a grand time over in the UK, and uh, I'm sure we'll we'll mention that if time or two on today's show but everybody is now back uh in their regular lives uh and uh, uh we're we're kind of resuming our our normal schedule i hope I do apologize first off uh for taking so long to get out the uh or publish the last episode 333 i had some other things going on in my personal life and i just could not focus on anything but that and so it took me a lot longer to get the uh, audio all edited and all the stuff that i do to publish stuff so thank you everyone for your patience regarding that but we should be back to a normal schedule here um soon and uh let's see the macbook um if you watched 333 especially looked at the uh, pre-show video i have it um marked in the um show notes from the last show uh, if you haven't seen it you need to look at it because uh, we're, we're dubbing it the uh, the great beer spill of 2018 <laughs> and uh that was a lot of fun but uh <laughs> so far the macbook uh 15 inch is still running and uh Fantastic. so i think we uh we dodged a bullet there that was uh that was a lot of fun oh, that's good as much as I know you'd maybe like a new laptop. Yeah, but, you know, that's okay. Might have been a good excuse. Yeah, yeah well, it's going to die eventually, so, you know, it's uh, still working okay. Excuse me. By the way, aluminium was the accepted spelling in the USA until 1925. <laughs> Why did you change? I mean, you had it right. What's wrong with you guys? We just like to be different. Yeah. That's really what You're just is. not going to let it go, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, now, getting back to our intro section here 
Uh, let's see. I have some notes regarding, uh, let's see, the last time that we or you saw us or heard us on the show, we were recording at uh, in the conservatory at uh, Nicholas and Jilly's wonderful home in Liss, Hampshire. And uh, then the next day we went to uh, the uh, the Farnborough International Air Show, met up with a whole bunch of great people there. And uh, that night, that evening, Saturday night, we headed over to the Sarson Stones pub and a huge turnout. It was a I lot was of a great night. Yeah. Fantastic night. And uh, we decided to uh, just not do a recording because it would have taken an hour and a half of the show, I'm sure, if we had done so. So we decided just to I think we basically took over the entire place. Yeah, we did. We did. And everywhere yeah. you turned around, it was APG. Yeah, APG t-shirts everywhere. It was a yes. swamp of them. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Got to brilliant. And got to meet a lot of uh, folks, uh, new folks that I hadn't met before, and got to uh, uh, talk with people that I had met in the past as well again. So great time. Um, really enjoyed that. And then the next day, uh, Dana and I headed home for uh, the U.S. of A. And uh, don't really want to talk much about that. I, I made some poor decisions <laughs> choosing what, <laughs> why I should get home. You know, the first flight was great. But uh, the rest of the uh, – it took me about now, four there, hours There was longer. a lot of debate uh, <laughs> leading up to this too, wasn't there, about there which was. flights might be ideal? Uh-huh. I should have – you know what I should have done in hindsight is just hung around Heathrow for another, what, four hours or whatever, three hours, and then just taken the nonstop to Atlanta. And I would have been home about four hours earlier than I actually I, got home. Yeah. I thought the best way was – I, I did – in all fairness, I did try to warn you. Well, you warned me not to take that flight because of uh, payload optimization or something. Well, yeah, payload optimization. But then I fourth warned you before you went for the Boston flight after I looked at the weather and knew it was coming through there as to not the reason why you shouldn't go to Boston. Well, I, I pretty much was had you on permanent ignore by that point because I wasn't sure if you were trying to help me or trying not to help I was trying help to help you. Okay. Well, anyway, I ended up going from Boston to Raleigh-Durham and then – Raleigh Durham to Atlanta and And how'd you end up going to Raleigh Durham? Oh, you suggested that I maybe That's look at right. some other uh, places because you felt bad about screwing me and making me go through Boston. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> just kidding. Anyway, as I said, we're not going to talk about that. Well, we just did, didn't we? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see what else. So, uh, Steph, you uh, went home on Monday, I believe. Yep, I went home on Monday. Y'all uh, went to uh, back to the uh, Farnborough International Air Show on Sunday, right? I did. Okay. And uh, Nick did not. Um, but I went back and I did a um, quick show with the guys from Plane Talking UK. So we did that up in the media center. They were nice enough to let us uh, sit in there and record a quick show. And we had some special guests for that. And they've published that. So go check out their website and uh, you can watch all of that there. And it sounds like I um, came very close to actually seeing a couple of our other listeners who were only at the show on Sunday, but somehow managed to miss both of them. So my apologies to those folks. You know who you are. I've talked to you both already. So uh, next time, two years, probably. (laughs) We'll see. Hey, don't feel bad, whoever that was, because, uh, you know, Steph has stood us up before as well. So. Oh, yeah. That's true. But that was on purpose. Oh. <laughs> well, that makes and me feel so much better. I was just about uh, dead, so I just needed to let my um, body rest for a day. I think if I'd taken it out on another trip to Farnborough, I would have 
pegged it there and then in the media center. It was a it was a great week and a half for me, but I'm telling you, you know, a lot of um, warm weather and air show sunshine and lots of drinking. Lots of drinking. Lots of eating. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was it was kind of nice to uh, finally yeah. be done with all that. <laughs> I had a, I had a lovely flight on the way back. Thanks for asking. My direct flight back to Charlotte, uh, <laughs> not delayed at all, and actually. Um, ended up having a little bit of a contest or a race with uh, Captain L, unbeknownst to our respective flight crews and or anyone else except for who we were sharing it with on Twitter. But um, we had nearly identical arrival times. Him, He was going from Dublin to Chicago O'Hare to go to then go on to Oshkosh. And I was flying, obviously, from Heathrow to Charlotte. And our arrival times were very, very, very similar. You know, a matter of minutes in between the two. So we kind of started a little competition there and I'm happy to say I ended up winning by almost 15 minutes in the end. That was very entertaining, by the way, I was, my thanks to um, the (laughs) folks at the Charlotte Douglas airport who turned the airport around just in time for us to have a straight in landing, not have to do any vectoring around. And, um, my thanks to American Airlines for having that gate empty, too, since we were a little bit early. Man, Steph has so much pull, especially with the uh, people in the Charlotte area. I'm convinced that they, they knew it was going on and they, they helped us out behind this, the scenes. I, I think on Twitter they call her an influencer. I think you're right, actually. And I think she probably gets about you know eight hundred thousand dollars a tweet or something. That's wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. And she was has that, a, was that not most of She has an IPA named after her. Uh, did you I get know. a chance to try that stuff? I did. I got a chance to go up mm-hmm. to Bruce the painkiller, the pain reliever, pain reliever. Sorry. Yes, yes. Went up to Ghostface Brewing on, um, gosh, what was that? Last Friday. That was the 27th, I believe, of July. I uh, met up there with uh, Mark uh, Lebrowski, one of our listeners who's up there in the Lake Norman area. And it's friends of his who run the brewery and are the, the guys, the head brewer there. So my thanks to them for putting all of that together and naming it for me and doing a really fine job of making a very, very, very nice IPA. Had a couple of pints of it there. And then I brought home a growler, which I will probably be cracking into in the next day or two oh. to enjoy some more of. Presumably they chucked lots of tropical fruit in it for the for you. Did they? You know, this one was not, not terribly fruity. I think you would have enjoyed it. Okay. Well, good. Excellent. Well, I look forward to it. Well, I don't think there's any going to be any left by the time you're able <laughs> Probably to. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, they didn't bottle any of it, did they? No. I, you know, there was, I think, a question of maybe we could get some cans of it, but no. I don't think you it You should have brought a growler with you. Yeah, I have a growler. Oh, it's it. full? Yeah. Full of that? It is now, but I bet that in, within the next two, three days, it won't be. Well, they don't last forever in the growler. So well, once you open it up, yeah, you need to yeah. drink it. Drink. Yeah. Drink. Oh, drink. You, one thing drink. you did forget to mention, Jeff, is that flight from Boston to Boston, the entertainment system was in up. Yeah, but, you know, uh, that didn't bother me at all. I, I had uh, several electronic devices that uh, I used to. Well, you had room for your electronic devices. Uh, yeah. Yep, I did. I would have had room. <laughs> I see where he's going with this. I would have had room. Where were you sitting, yeah. Dana? If I had a Comfort Plus no. seat, I would have had plenty beside? of room in my with my iPad. You don't understand. There was a lady that is big, if not bigger than me, sitting in the seat next to me. Mm-hmm. It took up all of her seat and about a quarter of my seat. Hmm. You didn't have. <laughs> and a- I didn't even get one visit from the guy that was sitting in business class. 
Well, I, don't, I no. had no light. I couldn't even read because with the entertainment system down, the screens throughout the entire airplane were down. You could I had no way of turning on my reading light. Couldn't even read. Couldn't get the internet and couldn't watch anything. So I sat there with, with my body halfway into the aisle because I was pushed out there and uh, got hit by every time the flight attendants came by. Took me four days to recover from going over to London. This was a, a Boeing, was it? It was. Hmm. Hmm. coming. You know what I need to do? I need to get a uh, sound clip of like a baby crying or something. I'm not crying. <laughs> hey, if I, really didn't, if I didn't give you that recommendation, you would have been stuck in coach. I owe my life to you, man. Thank you so much for everything yeah. that you did for me. The world's smallest <laughs> violin. That's what yeah. you need to. Yep. Anyway, um, Nick? Well, you didn't have a flight home, so no, never- I didn't. I just had to recover from uh, <laughs> from your lovely visit. Yes, which dealt my liver a severe blow, but luckily <laughs> most of it's still going, so that's fine. Uh, no, I've uh, had a, a fairly quiet time. Got some good news from uh, the docs. I've uh, got my medical back, uh, so that's uh, tick VG. I'm just waiting for them to decide what they're going to do in the way of uh, refresher training. Uh, so. Um, because my Sims uh, that I last flew are coming out of, out of recency, and of course I haven't sat in a cockpit for ages, so I don't think it's uh, probably appropriate for me to go just climb an airplane. I need to uh, get some recency and uh, learn about a bunch of new procedures which have been introduced. So um, not exactly looking forward to going uh, into the Sim, but uh, it'll all be uh, um, you know, good in the end, I'm sure. Well, speaking of flying, uh, Dana, I noticed that you're actually on a trip. Um, so was it hard or did you have to remind yourself which seat to sit in when you got into the cockpit or do you, was there any trouble at all remembering how to fly? Lots of trouble. Just It's <laughs> been too long. <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, you know, the airplane did something freaky as the MD-80 has a tendency of doing. And I kind of looked at it and I looked at it and it took me a few seconds to realize what was going on. But uh, it's, uh, it's really good to be back in the air. Uh, I'm flying with a uh, fantastic uh, first officer who's taking really good care of me. Um, and uh, I, I can't tell you how much i've missed being out here flying and, and today was uh, today was my first day of the three-day trip i'm here in richmond and it was a relatively all right i'm going to say this because i'm going to jinx myself i'm knocking on wood here to be knocking on wood it was today was an you know relatively good day um it's my first trip that i've actually had that they didn't have a problem so far so it's uh it's uh, nice to be out there and, and being the guy in charge setting the tone and um a couple of uh really good a-line flight attendants you know the person that's in charge or the purser so uh, really good to, to uh, work with them um and just a smooth overall smooth operation actually left out of new orleans so they closed the door 10 minutes early so uh, nice. I, you know we just looked at each other and said wow they're, they're they're ready to roll here and even the ramp was ready so it was crazy so we waited until we got our, our pre-pushback messages and then we were on our way and then taxiing out they gave us an eight minute time frame to get airborne so i mean it was just like everything was clicking right along so it was it was really honestly uh, one of the better days I can remember in recent memory of, of, of being out there flying. 
until the hotel van didn't show up. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to stay positive, Jeff, <laughs> okay, because my trip to back and forth to London, although being in London was absolutely fantastically awesome to be with all the uh, APG uh, listeners and, of course, the crew members uh, to getting to and from, I'm just not going to complain. So I'm trying to stay positive. And so anything that has to do with going, getting transportation, all right, so I'll go into it, call the <laughs> hotel. And, uh, of course, we arrived Believe it or not, we arrived five minutes early, and we were, we were just about curbside about the time we uh, should have been normally there, about uh, five minutes after arrival, five, ten minutes after arrival, and no hotel van. That's what's with, with us is very unusual, usually, uh, especially with the downtown transportation, it's usually a transportation company, and they're always there waiting on us. Uh, and so we get out there, and I call and said, uh, this is such and such crew. We're uh, Acme. And we're looking for a hotel shuttle. Uh, be 25, 30 minutes, the hotel shuttle hasn't left the hotel downtown. So, well, that's unacceptable. You, we're kind of on a shorter overnight, and um, that's certainly beyond uh, normal wait time. And I said, well, what about a taxi? And they said, okay, go ahead and get a taxi. He said, will you direct bill it? And they said, absolutely. So when we get there, which it only took about five minutes to get a taxi, um, when we got to, to the hotel, I said, well, just out of curiosity, this is our normal scheduled arrival time, and you're our new hotel in Richmond. Is there a particular reason why you didn't have the van there, even though, you know, with a normal operation? Yeah, we don't have any staff to come pick you up. Excuse me? So um, it worked out okay. But I would imagine that they need to work on their staffing issue because if it's a regularly scheduled arrival time and they don't have anybody to pick us up, that's that's going to be a problem. Well, you got there, though. That's that's the good thing. Yeah. Got here and got here. And I specifically there was uh, I think it was six three day trips that were in open time, open time being, you know, from the, you know, like when Jeff pulls or picks up. Uh, you know, extra flying, he goes to open time or swaps things. So it's available trips that are, are, are out there th to be flown. So I uh, went to open time and I saw that there was no question that I was going to be flying. I was number three on call out of, out of, uh, on the list of the people that were available and there was six trips. So I knew I was going to go. So we can put in what's called a yellow slip and I can preference based on if my seniority hold it. Uh, a particular trip, and I saw this trip, and of the trips, this was the only trip that allowed me to get in uh, early enough today anywhere to be a part of the podcast. So I, of course, preference this, and I uh, end up with a 20-hour Sarasota layover tomorrow as long as I get to go to it, and uh, so I'm looking forward to that as well. So it worked out really well, and, you know, the only only real big question mark is the weather in the southeast is supposed to be, as Dr. Seth alluded to earlier, and uh, is that the weather in the southeast is going to be kind of cruddy the next several days. So I'm hoping it doesn't affect us too bad, especially flying, as Jeff has talked about in the past, prefer to fly in the morning. And that's uh, what I'm doing. So you can stay away from most of the afternoon weather. Yeah, but even lately, uh, the morning has still been not free of that kind of weather so Current, again uh, i'm trying to be radar. positive and optimistic. yeah me too because i gotta fly tomorrow as well so <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, steph you're holding up something on your phone oh I, you know just current radar yeah Ooh, very colorful nice that's very colorful yeah well you know I, we all need rain right 
especially California. Let's send it yeah, to them. They really need the we rain. don't need any more. No, we just need to. How's uh, the UK doing, Nick? Have you gotten enough rain yet? Oh, we had a couple of days of pretty heavy rain. Uh, so some big storms. And then yesterday was constant uh, all day rain. So the garden's perking up nicely. Thank you Excellent. very much. Everything's and we're greening back up. To relatively up, greening up nicely. We're back to relatively dry and clear skies again. So uh, looking forward to a very pleasant rest of the week. Actually. We're going green. Woo-hoo. We're going Any green. Getting green. We're gonna take care it of the earth. Is. We're going green. Yeah, I've been I've been mowing the lawn religiously. Oh, you mean you're a little robot thing? <laughs> <laughs> what? No, I I've been mowing the lawn. What? I, I set that off. I, what using your remote control robot? <laughs> using your iPad. Mowing the lawn. He means he sits there and he watches it go back and forth with a, a beverage in hand. It's and hard when it work. Gets stuck. When it, it gets is. stuck, you know, running into a corner or something. Oh, the got to go back out there. I and... have certain standards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we I feel sorry for you. <laughs> Good. I should think so, too. <laughs> uh, hey, you know what? So, you know, we went to, well, Nick and I and uh, Nigel and Captain mm-hmm. Al and Pip went to two air shows in the U.K., back-to-back, the Riyadh and the uh, Farnborough International Air Show. Here in the United States, uh, a very large air show is held every year up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Lake Winnebago. Uh, They call it the EAA Air Venture. And a lot of folks from our aviation community were up there having a great time getting together and spending time with each other, looking at all kinds of great airplanes and, and doing all kinds of fun stuff and we received some audio feedback from said group of people and uh, i have i think at least three audio feedbacks to play regarding uh, the happenings up in uh, wisconsin so you want to listen to that sure yeah. all right take it away here we go uh g'day it's glenn here from oshkosh 18 uh another fantastic week here at the mecca of aviation uh too many aircraft to mention too many friends to mention it's been another great year uh, sorry about that that's uh, um jagen just going past in his beach 18 uh, the guys he's black and red beach 18 is doing another great aircraft display uh, yeah, well, it's, just, it's just worth every second. Uh, about to do an interview with a guy who flew in, in a T6 Harvard from the New Zealand Air Force. So that should be interesting. And I've just got a T6 tex- taxiing past me. So it's, uh, it's a cool place. It really is. Anyway, if you haven't been here before, you do have to come here. Uh, and meet up with people like Dispatcher Mike and Jen and and lots of other APG listeners. So, I'll probably do some more feedback before the end of the week. Today's Wednesday. Tonight's the night. Tonight is the uh, night flying show, so that should be uh, interesting. Anyway, okay, Glenn out. Ah, great great background sounds there. And uh, Glenn also sent us one more. Syndrome suffers Captain Jeff, Steph, Captain Dana. It's Glenn from New Zealand. 
the first part of it got cut off. So anyway, um, this is a hard recording to make. I'm just Oshkosh is over now and um, saying goodbye to everyone. <clears throat> yeah, it's been great. Been really good, really good year. It's all about the people, oh, definitely the people. I mean, the air show itself was was good. It was good. Everything, you know, it wasn't outstanding like some years have been too. But um, it's definitely the friends that I make here that I've made over the years coming to Oshkosh and through the APG syndrome. APG syndrome. Yeah, yeah, it, it is really. I mean, it's great. The number of friends I've I've seen the, the new friends I've made this year as well through 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 social media, Instagram and things like that. It's been great. Really has been great. And let's do it all again next year. And hopefully the issue might seem more outstanding this year. Uh, yeah, I missed a few things I would like to see, like the, that meteor, the Gloucester meteor flying. So, well, I mean, yeah, let's... let's uh, and I, oh, great to meet Captain Al. Really. No, he's such a good, nice guy. And his dad's a great guy, too. Apparently he's a, a cut, he flew competitions in New Zealand, so... I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. So, yeah, let's hope we all, let's hope more APG people come over next year. Like I was saying before, we really need to get lots of APGs. Now I know Farmer's not on next year, so you guys have, um, well, you don't have much excuse this year not to come over. And we need to get people from the PTUK as well. Matt and Carlos as well to come over. Anyway, well... And that's it, really. I can't think of anything else. I'm just about ready to... Uh, if I keep on talking, I'll get really quite upset. So, all good. Okay, that's it. Goodbye, USA. See you next year. Glenn out. Glenn, hang in there. You know, keep it together, man. Um, that, uh, that, that was nice. Thank you for sending in that feedback. Uh, by the way, uh, Mike uh, Carroll's, the... Uh, Dispatcher Mike, the Flying and Life host, uh, Flying and Life podcast, pretty much the uh, the podcast of record for the EAA Air Venture. I mean, are there any others that uh, cover it so well? Uh, in the latest uh, episode, he um, had Glenn on for a couple of segments. Uh, Glenn was recording some stuff for uh, for Mike, and uh, he mentioned it in his first piece of audio feedback. The uh, the Harvard the T six. Uh, from New Zealand that was there at uh, Oshkosh, and he interviewed the gentleman that was uh, flying it. Yeah, very interesting stuff, so uh, please check out Flying and Life podcast. Speaking of... I, I yes? reckon, sorry, I was just going to say, getting a Harvard uh, to Oshkosh from New Zealand must have been a story just in its own right. I wonder how the hell they did it. I think the, uh, the airplane actually has been here in the U.S. for a number of years. The guy that owns it, bought it, and owns it, uh, as a retired American Airlines uh, pilot, uh-huh. and uh, and so uh, yeah, I don't know how long it's it's been here in the states, but it is one of those that was in New Zealand, and then when they uh, put it up for surplus back in I think the seventies, trying to recall exactly the details regarding it, uh, the uh, uh, it was purchased and flown back back gotcha. back then. Okay. So yeah. Anyway, uh, and then finally, uh, speaking of the devil. Uh, Dispatcher Mike, uh, Flying in Life podcast, he sent us in some feedback as well. So I'm going to go ahead and play that right now. Captain Jeff, crew, and APG community, it's Dispatcher Mike here. I'm in Oshkosh. I went to the Lifetime uh, dinner yesterday, and I ran into... Brandon Lovejoy. 
I ran into Brandon, and I sat down at the table, and uh, him and his uh, him and his wife were just kind of just sitting there. And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll sit here with these people so they're not alone. And then we started talking, and then, then he ended up and realized who I was, which was the first time ever someone in public has said, oh, you're Dispatcher Mike. I know who you are. And I'm like, you do? And uh, so we had a great time at the Lifetime Dinner. And, uh, Brandon, tell me a little bit about uh, how you got here, um, what you fly, and what you're doing here at Oshkosh. I got here by driving. I live on the other side of Wisconsin. And while I'm here, I'm hanging out in the ultralight section a lot. I fly uh, both airplanes and paramotors. And so today we did a mass arrival. We drew, drove about 10 miles out of town or out from the airport and then flew our paramotors using the ultralight approach into Oshkosh. What is a paramotor? A paramotor is a two-stroke engine that you wear on your back and then you wear a uh, harness that connects you up to a paraglider and you run into the air and then fly it like an airplane, sort of. So you basically have a two-stroke engine connected to a pusher propeller and you have a little little fabric seat that you sit on and your feet just dangle? They do. It's like a lawn chair in the sky. Okay. How do you control it? Are there controls like a yoke or do you kind of shift weight or how does it fly that way? It's a combination of shifting your weight and then also using brake toggles that go up to the trailing edge of the wing uh, and that pulls down on the side of the wing that correlates to the side you're pulling on uh, and then you kind of get a little bit of a a bank that way and can get pretty sharp turns going. Now these are the same things that the Paradigm Airshow team flies, correct? It is, yes. So is there any difference between like your paramotor and their paramotor? For the wing, there's a pretty big difference between what I fly and what a lot of them fly. I fly an intermediate wing, uh, which has a little bit more stability in flight. So if you hit turbulence, it kind of rides through it a little bit more nicely. Uh, if you turn, it won't let you turn as hard as uh, a more advanced wing will and they fly very advanced wings that let them do all of the exciting things that they do up there are there beginner wings there are uh, everyone starts on a beginner wing they they use a rating system that's a b c and d uh, a being a beginner wing d being the most advanced wing uh, i fly a c wing uh, beginners would start on a and typically they'll get maybe Depending on the person, five to ten flights, those you have to put a lot of pressure on the brakes to get it to do a very shallow turn. Uh, so to get something like a pilot-induced oscillation is a lot more difficult with that. Um, and then you kind of progress from there. Uh, for me as an airplane pilot, coming into it, it was more difficult. I would get myself into little oscillations a little bit at the beginning because it's more like a pendulum. You turn to the right and then you let off of the brake and it just levels you back out. You don't have to give it any left control at all. So that's kind of a, a change of pace. So you're a member, a lifetime member of the EAA, as am I. That's why we met at the lifetime dinner uh, last night. Why did you choose to become a lifetime member? I really like what the organization does. Uh, I think a big thing for the future of the thing that we love is getting younger people involved. Uh, they've got the Young Eagles that really focuses heavily on that, and they're continuing, continuously trying to improve what they do with that. Um, and then they put on great advocacy efforts, and they're overall probably my favorite aviation organization. I, I would say I could uh, pretty much agree with that. So, Brandon, you sent some feedback a while ago to the APG show. Or what was that, and what was your response, and how, how well received did you take that advice? 
My question for Jeff at the time was uh, about my flight instructor when I was first getting started. I had an instructor that was getting ready for retirement, and he uh, was no longer as interested in uh, doing the instructing as he once was, in my opinion. So he wasn't as, I guess, interested uh, overall in the whole process. And so I asked Jeff if I was just being a wimp and if I should just power through with this instructor or if I should try out different instructors, what, what's appropriate. Uh, he recommended that I try out some other instructors, see if somebody meshes with my style. Uh, be sure to find somebody that you're comfortable with, uh, that you get along with, and that their style works well with yours. And I did that, and I found an excellent instructor um, and finished up my private license with him. And he taught me a lot of different ways of looking at things, uh, different than what my first instructor taught me. And so now I kind of know multiple ways that different people look at the same problem or the same way of doing things. Um, and it worked out great. Are you going to go on and get an instrument rating? I want to. I, uh, I was saving money for it, and then Paramotors came along, and my instrument rating fund kind of went in a different direction. So uh, to uh, Jeff and the community, this is uh, Dispatcher Mike here with Brandon from uh, sunny Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And uh, I honestly think you guys need to come here next year. There's no farm borough next year, so why don't we make it a uh, 2019 Oshkosh big APG event? Just putting it out there. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, you know what? The best part of that, all those audio um, feedbacks was... The background noise. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you guys for taking the time to record and say interesting things. I'm sure what you said was yeah, quite well, riveting. <laughs> we were just listening to the airplanes in the background yeah. the whole time. That's yeah. Did anybody say anything anywhere? Yeah. What What were they talking about anyway? No. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, I mean, I wasn't sure exactly where that was going with Brandon. I'm thinking, oh, I hope he didn't give him any bad advice. <laughs> I was trying to remember what his feedback was. I was like, oh, man, I have no idea. Yeah. Turns out it was... Sounds like it was good advice. Ah, so that uh, was one of those times when we were in the in the upper uh, upwards of fifty percent or better category. Indeed. So anyway, um, yeah, it sounded like a a great time over at Oshkosh. And you know what? I think uh, all of your suggestions that uh, we make it a a big uh, APG uh, or aviation podcast meetup uh, might be. Uh, taken very, very seriously. We're really talking about uh, making uh, or being present next year uh, for Oshkosh. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. And uh, we're even thinking, uh, or I was thinking, and I think everybody agrees it would be a lot of fun uh, getting one of those really nice, big, giant RVs, uh, rent one of those suckers, and uh, find a place in the uh, RV uh, camping area and uh, if, coffee uh, fund, Jeff. Coffee, coffee fund. fund. Yeah, we really uh, send your donations in now. If we you need want more contributions. Airlinepilotguy.com. There we go. Yeah, it's uh, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, please. Oh, coffee. I'm sorry. Yeah, wow. That's all right. I know that. Um, but so here's the deal uh, if any of you listening to this, uh, and I'm sure many of you listening have been up at Oshkosh and know the, you know, the their way around uh if you know um some information regarding you know renting rvs and uh you know securing a spot in the rv parking area camping area let us know uh, send it to uh, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com or directly to me jeff at airlinepilotguy.com because yeah, we apparently need to get going on that pretty mm-hmm. quickly because uh, things start filling up pretty pretty fast so well i just You're went like over to week. the 
EAA's uh, website and it has the dates for 2019 and all the information up for planning your trip. So I guess that might be a good place to start. Excellent. Yeah. Or we're looking for some, uh, like, you know, some some insider insider info. info. Yeah. So all you experts. We want to do it upright, you know? I mean, even get the RV painted with the the airline pilot guy show logo. Well, maybe not. Especially if it's a rental, they may frown <laughs> down upon that. Now, really? Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> just, uh, just get a big oh, sign. That might be my right. next toy I can buy. There we'll, you go. Uh, just see it as an improvement, I'm sure. Yeah, Dana, yeah. I have kids in college. You have money to spend on the RV. <laughs> <laughs> you get that right. I've always wanted one. Uh, well, let's talk. Anyway, uh, so thanks, everyone, for uh, – oh, and by the way, uh, Jen was there. She's a great blogger, uh, Tales from the Tarmac. Terminal. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, ter- Terminal. <laughs> <laughs> Tales from the Tarmac is a different one. It's not as good. Trust me. It's kind uh, of Tales, a parody. Right. Tales I'm from sure. the Terminal. <laughs> yeah. Tales from the Terminal. That's an electrical uh, podcast. Uh, <laughs> I think so. Um yeah. So uh, really, uh, I was I was a little envious uh, listening to all the fun that everybody was having up there. Uh, and uh, we are definitely going to be there next year. So we're it's official. We'll be there. I, Ivor suggested maybe an APG tent. Oh, Ivor. I think we can probably do better than that. Come on. This is the APG show. We don't do tents. We're very intense. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, we might have to do that, but uh, we'll see. Um, That'll be our backup plan. Uh, I was going through some stuff, looking at uh, some of the feedback that we covered on the last show, and somebody had sent us some feedback asking about uh, smoking in the cockpit. I think we kind of took a tangent there when we were answering the questions, talking about smoking in the back of the airplane, and kind of briefly talked a little bit about smoking in the cockpit. But one of the things that came to mind after the show was finished was the fact that when I flew the C-141 Starlifter, great airplane made by Lockheed, um, the uh, only place that you could smoke on the airplane was the cockpit. And uh, most pilots and now, yeah, pretty much just the pilots, uh, most of us did not didn't smoke. But the engineer slash scanners and the loadmasters and any other uh, enlisted folks that we had on board with us, if we were carrying them, uh, would come up to the cockpit to smoke. And it was like a smoking lounge up there in the cockpit. It was really, really bad, smoky. Um, I, that's one one of the things I really did not like about that airplane was the fact that uh, it was always smoke-filled up in the cockpit. but uh, Well, you should have just kicked them out. Well, I'd rather have them up there smoking than smoking in the back illicitly and then catching something on fire so <laughs> you know how that goes anyway uh so i just wanted to i, I made a note of that here in the uh, intro notes just wanted to mention that um anything else to mention in the beginning of the show here before we move on with the coffee fund the coffee slash rv fund temporarily <laughs> <laughs> renamed yeah <laughs> yeah, can we pick this RV up from LA or somewhere like that I can fly to and then drive it over? LA to Wisconsin? LA. I think we can find somewhere. Can't you closer. go to Atlanta? Yeah, can't you go not to Atlanta? Well, come on, guys, it'd be an adventure. We could make a road trip. You know how far away 
Los Angeles. LA is no, West he does Coast. not. Not a clue. Excellent. <laughs> you look at a map. <laughs> it's not close. Uh, you have to go over the continental divide. <laughs> well, that'd be it's an adventure in twice. itself, wouldn't it? It, it, it? Yeah, twice. Yeah. All right. Don't you remember I did? How I about San Francisco the, then? I rode across no, this country on a motorcycle. It. I know what it's like to go across this country. You need Although, a week each way. Although you could do it from San Francisco just on I-80 in about three and a half days. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Well, maybe it'll be a great adventure. We'll 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 take a look at logistics. See Can't how. we just meet up in Chicago and drive from there? That, that That's what I was thinking. Milwaukee? Uh, Chicago slash Milwaukee. Well, I would have fly to Milwaukee. Yeah. Well, e- you find in Chicago. Got to go somewhere that we that Acme Red goes to. Chicago. Chicago. Uh, I'm not quite sure if we go to Chicago anymore. Hey, it's time for the coffee fund. (laughs) (laughs) I love coffee. I love tea. I love the big giant APG RV. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. The coffee fund is your way to help us fund... Oshkosh 2019 and our RV <laughs> and uh, information about how you can do that is found at our website and since the last program, the last episode we have some classic fund contributors Jeffrey Pemberton Deanna Tickle and Nicholas Chaco and they use, the, as I mentioned, the classic method, uh, PayPal. Uh, you can make a one-time or recurring donation via that vehicle. And the other way to support the show and the Coffee Fund, be part of the Coffee Fund cadre, is via Patreon. And we have two new producers since the last episode, Eric Intilli and Ron Steele. Uh, again, uh, you should uh, help us out if you have the resources to do so. Become part of our Coffee Fund cadre. Head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did, and we'll be even gladder. Thank you. Stand by for news. All right, first up in the news folder, we have this story from the New York Post, newyorkpost.com. Flight attendants to be deported over turtle smuggling operation. Two Chinese flight attendants turned turtle smugglers were ordered booted from the U.S. on Monday, according to a report. The Chinese Eastern Airlines workers had been secretly stashing dozens of legally uh, protected spotted and boxed turtles in pillowcases and carrying on or carry on luggage to smuggle them from Los Angeles to China, where they would cash in on them on the black market, authorities said. The turtles' colorful shells are believed to be, bring good luck in China, and their meat supposedly increases sexual prowess when eaten. 
rogue flight attendants. And I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce their names. They're Chinese, and they don't look easy to pronounce. Anyway, 41 and 31 years old, respectively, were suspected of having carried out their scheme for a while, prosecutors said. But their luck ran out on May 12th when one of their luggage was scanned by a TSA inspector in Los Angeles who just happened to be a turtle aficionado, authorities said. The TSA worker at Los Angeles International Airport noticed unusual round objects in Q's carry-on bags and realized they were the reptiles based on his enthusiasm for turtles as a teenager, court documents show. The flight attendants were found to have 31 spotted turtles, 31 spotted turtles, and 14 box turtles between them at the time. They must not be How very big. Do you even carry that many turtles? I don't know. Do you have any other luggage with you? Like any other clothing? I guess not. Apparently no, not. I, I guess they're tiny. Have babies. But, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe if they were all babies. Recently hatched yeah. turtles. Are you a turtle aficionado, uh, Dana? I am not, but I've taken a lot of pictures of turtles under the water. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, any turtle that I've ever seen of adult nature uh, is always, it, it's a very big turtle. So, um, even the turtles that you see in lakes tend to be at least the size of a plate. So yeah, the turtles can, in our lake are pretty large. I'm trying yeah. to imagine 45 turtles in luggage. Yeah, so it had had to have been babies. And I, yeah. I mean, to me, as a an appreciative person of what we have in nature and the beauty that it it is, especially in the water, uh, it's pretty offensive to me that people would be doing this. Well, they pleaded yeah. guilty last month and yeah. face up to five years behind bars. And on Monday, they received probation, so they didn't get put in jail, and were ordered to each pay five thousand five hundred dollars uh, fine. It doesn't seem that's, like that's, at least to be a penalty, does it? No, no, not no. at all. Mm. Not at all. It's just it's very offensive to me. Uh, mind you, I suppose they lost their jobs. At least I would hope so. And perhaps the Chinese authorities will look down on them. Severely when they eventually get home. Hit them on the head with turtle yeah. shells. Good job they didn't pick ninja turtles. They would have uh, perhaps got more than they bargained for. That is true. Good yeah. point, Nick. You always make good points. Thanks, mate. All right, continuing. And maybe some pizza. And yeah. What? Oh, pizza. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't talk about food, please. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. My stomach sorry. is like going crazy. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mary Ellis. Uh, this next uh, item we are going to talk about. This was, um, oh, I th- I'm not sure who sent this in, but uh, the first part of this, it says, uh, did you see that Mary Ellis died yesterday at 101? She was a wonderful woman, and we saw her on television having another flight in a Spitfire at the age of 100. Oh, Tony, right there it says Tony. Uh, thank you, Tony. And he sent in a... Uh, a link to this article, Mary Ellis, the last female Second World War pilot, dies aged 101. She uh, joined Air Transport Auxiliary in 1941 and flew 1,000 planes in four years. <laughs> That's a lot of flying. Oh, my gosh. She's the last surviving British female pilot from the Second World War, and uh, she was 101 And when she died at her home on the Isle of Wight. She delivered Spitfires and bombers to the front line after responding to a radio appeal by the Air Transport Auxiliary for female pilots. And she joined, as they mentioned, uh, that organization in 1941 and flew about 1,000 planes over the next four years, including 400 Spitfires and 47 Wellington bombers. 
Well, I, I would say that she probably has more time in Spitfires and bombers than some of the guys that were assigned to the darn things. Oh, for sure. And what's more, she flew many of these aircraft uh, all alone. So, you know, when she got into a Wellington bomber, which normally had a crew of three, uh, plus gunners and the stuff, uh, she was on her own uh, and flew it completely single-handed, uh, you know, straight out of the factory and uh, flew them down to where they were going to be, uh, uh, you know, used on operational squadrons. So, so they did a remarkable job. There's a really nice piece, actually, at the end of this uh, from Richard Adams. Uh, I guess you spotted that, Jeff. Yes, sir. Um, would you like to read that? Sure. Uh, so I've, I've met Richard's lovely bloke. So uh, Richard wrote, uh, hi, I'm sure most people will have seen the uh, news clip. Mary was a real institution here at Sandown, sometimes attending our Christmas parties or club talks during the year. She was always treated like royalty at any aviation event, especially those involving her World War II colleagues. She would naturally attend in her original ATA uniform, which looked immaculate and still fitted perfectly. What an amazing lady. I can remember times when she would sit quietly over a cup of tea in the clubhouse when an obviously newly minted PPL might come in with a non-flying friend and then proceed to bray about the technicalities of flight as if they were an accomplished test pilot. Mary, unnoticed, would just raise an eyebrow, the speaker completely unaware of this remarkable lady's past. After the war, she still delivered aircraft for a short period, one notable occasion being when the aircraft was a meteor jet. <laughs> wow, she even moved to the jet age. That's incredible. Mary said that the briefing just consisted of the basic V-speeds and endurance with a warning that she's fairly thirsty. With that, she strapped in and successfully delivered the aircraft, becoming the first, and I think only, woman to ever have flown the Meteor. It was also her first time flying a jet. Mary will fly high in the minds of anybody who knew her. Great to meet you all at Farnborough last week, Richard Adams. It was great meeting you as well, Richard. And, uh, you know, so this is an amazing story, regardless of the gender, uh, but and that just makes it even more spectacular, uh, the fact that, you know, a, a woman uh, in this role uh, performing such great service to her country. And she's a, an attractive woman as well. Uh, some pictures of her when she was younger. And I think the last picture there uh, standing in front of the, I think it's a Spitfire there, isn't it? Um, Looks like it, yep. Wearing her original ATA uniform. And uh, she's still uh, an attractive woman, even in her older years or uh, later years. Yeah, it certainly looked after herself. I wouldn't believe she was 101. No, not at all. Amazing. So well, rest in peace, Miss uh, Mary. Yeah. Anything else? No, great story. Um, you know, one of those things that I know I've heard of in the past, but beyond just knowing about it, I don't know a lot of the details. So it's nice to hear the details even perhaps well after the fact. Yeah. All right, moving on. Red Arrows, RAF Scampton Air Base to be sold off, according to the BBC News. Uh, the home of the Red Arrows Air Display Team is to be sold off. The Ministry of Defense has confirmed RAF Scampton, which was also home to 617 Squadron as they prepared for the Dam Busters mission in World War II. We say 617. Oh, I'm sorry. You're welcome. Um, 
Thank you for correcting me. RAF Scampton, which was also home to 617 Squadron, as they prepared for the Dambusters mission in World War II, has housed the Red Arrows since 2000, or should I say 2000. 600 people. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> currently work at the site near Lincoln. The uh, MOD, which. What's that? I'm going to clip your ear. <laughs> The so MOD is an ocean separating you guys, right? <laughs> show. Between all the aluminum, aluminium, and numbers. I always take the and opportunity. To, I always take the opportunity to get a laugh if I can. So, <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't matter if it's by someone else's expense or at somebody else's expense, does it? Yeah. Um, the MOD, which wants to save three billion pounds by 2014, 2040, excuse me, is also closing. R-A-F, Linton on Ouse. How do you pronounce that? Linton, Linton on Ouse. That's Ouse. where Ooh. I did my basic training. The wow. River Ouse is a lovely name for a river. No, it's think? not. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like, uh, you know, the stuff in Ghostbusters, the slime. Yeah, oh, yeah. it looked a bit like that too. I must have. Yeah. Linton on Puss in uh, North <laughs> Yorkshire, where 300 people work. No, that's worse. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, you're welcome. Air Chief Marshal Sir Michael Graydon, Chief of the Air Staff from 92 to 97, said Scampton's a very good base. It has an extremely long runway and is situated in a part of the country which is ideal in many ways. I just hope that all of these consequences of closing Scampton are fully understood and appreciated. I'd like to know where they're going to put the Red Arrows. Uh, So, uh, yeah, Uh, the article goes on. I don't know if there's anything else that uh, is particularly pertinent other than where the heck are they going to put these uh, red arrows well the, the reds have moved around uh, several times in their history so i don't think this is a particularly dramatic event oh. they're going from scanton they'll be given a a new base after all you just need um you know a five-star luxury hotel nearby for the pilots <laughs> uh you know and uh, a beautifully uh, air-conditioned hangar for the engineers uh, who have to do a lot of polishing um and they'll be happy so i don't know um yeah they they were at uh, leeming before uh Scampton, as i recall uh and several other places in the old days they used to be at kemble uh, I seem to recall as well. So, um, yeah, uh, and they'll find a home for them, an airfield, uh, somewhere where they can go. Quite honestly, they're um, on the move a lot anyway. You know, it's not like they spend, particularly during the uh, show season, a lot of time at home. So um, I think this is just the usual, uh, we don't want to lose another airfield, uh, which I entirely understand. But uh, there you go. I think uh, in order to make cuts, you've got to close some places down. So what you're telling us is that they're going to be okay. Uh, yes, they will certainly be okay. They'll just find a new hangar for them, stick them in the corner of Collingsby, perhaps with the BBMF, the Battle of Britain Memorial flight. You can have them all in one spot then. There you go. Uh-oh. Time for some vacuuming. Yes, the story is about drones. Item D, drone to be used by British military breaks flight record. It's the Zephyr S drone. It's a solar-powered drone to be used by the British military. It set a new flight record, its developer Airbus said. The Zephyr S broke the endurance record for an unrefueled aircraft 
at 1.53 p.m. GMT on Wednesday afternoon, surpassing the 14 days, 22 minutes, and 8 seconds set by an older model in 2010. The plane, which weighs around as much as an average human, cruises in the stratosphere at around 70,000 feet and runs on solar power during the day and solar-charged batteries at night. Kind of reminds me of that... uh, that flight around the world. Um, I've already forgotten the name of the uh, project where the uh, uh, it was a manned uh, something challenge, was yeah, it? solar challenge or something. Solar like challenge, that. yeah, that's like that. that sounds familiar. Yeah, uh, this one is a an unmanned uh, version of the same kind of uh, uh, aerial vehicle, and uh, this record-breaking piece of kit is using a wide range of innovative technologies to blur the lines between air and space and could one day gather battle-winning information to help our troops on the front line. That was a quote from the Minister for Defense Procurement, Stuart Andrew. And uh, described by Airbus as a high-altitude Suedo satellite, a cross between a satellite and a drone, it has a wingspan of 25 meters and weighs around 75 kilograms. Pseudo-satellite? A pseudo satellite. Yeah. What did I say? Suedo? Yes. <laughs> oh. Yours was like a type of uh, material you make shoes out of. Oh, okay. Uh, let me let me do that again. Describe. <laughs> no, we like we liked it the first time. Um, Seventy-five like kilos. That's about what Steph weighs, isn't it? <sighs> that's an average human. Yeah. Well, I'm considerably more than that. So. Well, I'm you're above average. So if if you're if you're <laughs> considerably more than that, what makes me that way above average. <laughs> Actually, I'm, closer, I'm, I'm closer to 54, 55, I think. All right. Oh, cool. I mean, that's an incredibly light piece of kit for something with a 25-meter uh, wingspan, isn't it? Incredible. It doesn't I'm seem sure. like it'd be very durable or, uh, you know, like you could go up there and like Flimsy? touch it and maybe break it apart. Well, I don't know. I um, having remember the one I did on uh, man power flight. Uh, yeah, in mm-hmm. the sixties and seventies, they weren't very durable. But the modern materials they built these things out of, incredibly flexible, incredibly strong, and incredibly light. So, you know, that technology I think is uh, really moving forward. And uh, you know, obviously, uh, they seem to be able to get it up there, and kept it going for fourteen days. So that's you know a hell of a feat. Well, speaking of strong, durable, and lightweight, those blow-up sex dolls are. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. A man could face charges after allegedly sending a blow-up doll into the flight paths at Vancouver Harbor. The West Vancouver Police Department said two men at Ambleside Beach were filming a video on July 3rd with, quote, an adult-sized and shaped inflatable with 10 large helium balloons attached to it. The officer believed release of the inflatables posed a hazard to aircraft entering or leaving the harbor area. As the officer approached, one of the males released the balloons and inflatable, which then floated several hundred meters into the air west of Lionsgate Bridge. Police notified Transport Canada and the Civil Aviation Branch about the incident, who in turn sent an alert to all aircraft in the area. Police arrested the men and seized their phones. They were both released pending an investigation. One of the accused. Their phones. Why? <laughs> Why? They have to show up to court to get it back. Yeah, well, they probably figured they, are, they had a lot of good photos on this. It's Canada. I don't understand what happens up there most of the time. <laughs> That's crazy. crazy Surely they Canadians. just said they were sorry. Isn't that all you need to do in Canada? Yes, repeatedly. Uh, apparently, uh, yes. apparently, this is some kind of a 
prank on YouTube. A YouTube prankster under the name Brody TV claimed responsibility for the incident on Twitter. And he said, I'm going to court September 19th on a a charge of mischief for letting a sex doll that was strapped to a few balloons fly away. He tweeted, just wanted to let everyone know that in Canada, you must have no fun. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's true. Liz, come on. Is that true? (laughs) Liz is having fun right now. Uh, Yes, she is. That's true. So Sitting on that lakeside, sipping pink champagne, she's going to be having a ball. (laughs) That's right. Swimming and drinking. Andy, come on. You have fun, don't you? I mean, we have a lot of uh, APG community members living up in uh, the great great north. Absolutely. However, if he's going to do that sort of thing like letting uh, an inflatable sex doll uh, into the air, perhaps he should have avoided the airlines, you know. Yeah, and maybe like one of those prominent landmarks like that Lionsgate Bridge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That may have been part of the problem. Yeah. Mind you, if, if you did it in the middle of a deserted de- desert, I don't suppose it would have made very good footage. No, probably not. You know, Frick uh, sent us, I think it was Frick, sent us um, an article uh, that we covered in episode 327 regarding the South African Civil Aviation Authority uh, suspending the operating certificate of SA Express. Looks like they've uh, cleared SA Express to fly again, but it has only granted airworthiness certificates to two of the airline's 21 planes. It's going to be hard to make money on only two of your <laughs> yeah. 21 planes. You have to cut down those turn times. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Cram more people on the airplane. Right. Uh, it's, That'll help with safety. Yeah. Nah, safety. <laughs> It's said in a statement that as as such, the airline is in the meantime permitted to operate with only two of its aircraft. In May, the CAA grounded nine of SA Express's 29 planes after an audit discovered very poor maintenance of aircraft and severe cases of noncompliance that posed serious safety risks. Anyway, so, well, at least maybe they're on their way to getting back their full operating certificate with all those airplanes. But uh, anyway... Just thought we'd update that piece of news. And finally, in our news section, uh, this is an interesting one. Not a lot of information about it. Uh, the uh, From airlive.net, uh, two Iraqi Airways pilots having an argument in mid-flight began physically fighting at 37,000 feet hours after departing from an uh, Iranian airport on Wednesday. The plane, which was carrying 157 passengers at the time, was headed to Iraq from the Mashhad Airport, a city to the northeasternmost province of Iran that borders Turkmenistan and Afghanistan. Security guards in the plane intervened to break up the altercation, which, according to passengers on board, caused damage to the cockpit. Whew, that was a pretty bad fight. Good, Good job it was a Boeing. <laughs> well, it held up to the... Uh, yes. I mean, just imagine if it had been an Airbus. Oh, it would have crashed. <laughs> exactly. Well, you can smash most of a Boeing up. I guess it'll keep flying somehow. <laughs> They're resilient. Anyway, uh, the Iraqi Ministry of Transportation, the MOT, said on its website later that day that they had been, begun an investigation into the pilot and co-pilot's actions and had ordered immediately to restrict them from flying. They will have no chance of escaping harsh penalties and will face the worst and most severe punishments, the least of which is the denial of flight for life. 
Okay. Well, it's kind of over for them. <laughs> their careers are over and maybe their lives, sounds like in this uh, statement. It sounds like they're going to get uh, uh, tortured or something. I don't know. It looks not good for them. Hmm. Mm. All right. Well, that's it in our news folder. What do you oh, think? Can I get to bed now? Oh, okay. okay. Good night. Good night, Nick. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us today. Oh, Bye-bye, wait. Nick. Wait, we still have the best part of the show to go, don't we? Which, of course, of course, is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Oh, well, this is a this is one that we just received today. And uh, our producer, Liz, who is uh, not with us presently because she's enjoying uh, swimming and drinking and uh, the uh, company of friends up in her cottage somewhere in the beautiful country of Canada. Uh, but um, she put this as the leading piece of feedback for us today, and it is um, from Ivor. He writes, Hello, all you APG people. It's Ivor from the sunny side of the Atlantic. Just a note about the show recorded at Nigel Towers in Fair Fair Oxfordshire, a triumph by most standards. Tarquin has contacted me and has asked me to pass on his congratulations for reading out his feedback so beautifully. And he's right. The only problem is he listened to the audio version as against the rather chaotic YouTube effort. <laughs> and I fear that he thinks that Atlanta Jeff read it out and that his cultural coaching has been a standout success. Well, I'm not going to be the one that tells him otherwise. Call me a coward if you must but I'm a man that is easily frightened. But back to the reading itself. I assume you got the handsome and well-spoken chap that did read it from BBC Radio 4 or the World Service. What a triumph. New standards have been set. The bar is very high now. I assume you will be making all efforts to get this young man's signature on a contract as soon as possible. He's referring to, of course, the wonderful Neville Bounds that read out Tarquin's piece of feedback and uh nope he's still out there he's still a free agent so if anybody wants to uh contract neville uh he's available although he i must uh warn you is one of the co-hosts of the wonderful plain talking uk podcast anyway going on with uh ivor's feedback now i'm not saying that the rest of the apg crew are lacking in the delivery of the spoken word no no no, far from it. Your, um, er, how shall I put it? Your homespun delivery is at the core of your success, if success is how we describe the show. Survival of the show, maybe. No, I'm, I'm being unfair. All your accents are a huge help to all of us listeners. Dr. Steph helps us all understand the Deep South y'all. Captain Dana helps us with Chicago-based gangster shows. And Captain Jeff lets us know that there are people from America that you can understand. And finally, the lovable scamp, that is Captain Nick. I assume he's there to confuse your American-based listeners. Good work, Nick. Keep it up. I love, it. <laughs> love and kisses from Ivor McDonald. Apparently, he has some kind of uh, relationship with uh, Tarquin. So I, I don't get where Chicago and me have anything to do with each other. Well, obviously, no. your your accent is a Chicago accent, Dan. As a native Where? of Chicago, I'm confused with. <laughs> I think Ivor's confused. 
Ivor, we need to work on your American accents or your American accent recognition. It's Boston. It's Boston. (laughs) How do we not know that I'm from Boston? (laughs) Oh, well, I'm sure that will generate another piece of feedback. Perhaps all the Chicago-based gangster shows had Boston-speaking actors. I don't know. Oh, maybe that's it. Maybe it's because I look a little bit like Capone, Al Capone. That could be it as well. Yeah, I've seen his death mask, and actually, it's a striking resemblance. <laughs> his death mask. Yeah, if you go to the FBI headquarters in uh, uh, Washington, uh, they have his death mask on show. Hmm. What is a death mask? It's a it's a plaster cast they make of a face when oh. someone's dead. Oh, mm-hmm. self-explanatory, I guess. Okay. <sighs> well, there you have it. Thank you, Ivor. That's just really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Really. We yeah, got his tummy gun there as well. No, that you're just referencing me to a dead man's face. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't start the idea. It was somebody else's idea. It's a very okay. famous dead man. Dana, you should yeah. be happy about that. He was a tax evader. <laughs> Notorious. Notorious. Yeah. There you go. Notorious tax evader. Yes. Well, That's what they got him with in the end, wasn't it? Tax evasion? Yes. It was, indeed. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Number two. <laughs> uh, Rory writes, Hi, ABG crew. Let me start by saying this is a great podcast. I think that's all we need to read. Let's move on to item number three. <laughs> yeah, no. that's right. uh, this is a great podcast. I have almost definitely come down with the APG syndrome. I drive quite a bit now for work, and you all help pass the time wonderfully. I'm a respiratory therapist with an avid passion for aviation. And for a few years, I flew with a critical care transport team on helicopters, S-76, fixed wings, citation something, I can't remember which model it was, and ambulance. The helicopters were the most fun since you flew relatively low and fast compared to the fixed wing. I was just listening to episode 331 while you were talking about the emergency transponder codes. I can't remember exactly where I heard this, and I also can't figure out how it's hard to remember these three numbers, but there's a good saying to help remember what they are. 75, taken alive. 76, radio glitch. 77, going to heaven. I hope this helps some pilot out there having trouble remembering which code they need to put in. A quick question too. Captain Nick, when you were talking about the Acme Red crew that inadvertently pushed the test button, were they confused as to which button to push for landing? If it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going. Sounds like Rory's going to spend a lot of time on the ground then. (laughs) Blue skies and tailwinds. Rory. RRT. What is that? Re- something respiratory, something or other. Registered respiratory therapist. Registered respiratory I therapist. I feel like that's something I should actually probably know. And I'm not. That sounds, listening. that sounds right to me. So rude to me. <laughs> what do you think? 75 taken alive, 76 radio glitch, 77 going to have, I will never remember any of that. I just remember <laughs> what the codes are. The numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I've scored 77 a number of times in my career, and I haven't gone to heaven yet. I don't think I ever will. So <laughs> Wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you, you need the other mnemonic, the person who, you know, the seven going down for the direction. That's, uh... <laughs> yeah, going down. <laughs> I didn't say that. She did. So don't be upset with me. 
Well, zero guys, I you know always have to squat seventy seven hundred on a regular basis, flying that computer around. Ah, um, mm. I should I should talk. That's probably the airplane I'm going to. I should shut up <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah. yeah, you should. You're going to take a lot of grief for that at some point in the very maybe not so distant future. Yeah, yeah maybe not so distant. <laughs> Well, thank you, Rory, for your feedback. Sorry about the uh, the syndrome, but uh, many of us. I'm not sorry at all. If, <laughs> if he likes Boeing's, he can. Yeah. Oh, come on! They're all great airplanes. We we love them all dearly, don't we? Well, let's don't poop on our parade, huh? <laughs> Sean writes in. Thank you, Sean. This is from Inverse.com. Fecal waste falling from Canadian sky blamed on poopsicles by scientists. But the color of the poop doesn't add up. Okay. Mm. Imagine going for a casual drive with the sunroof down, soaking up the rays only to be splattered with poop raining from the sky. I think that's a wonderful day, actually. That's reportedly (laughs) what happened in Kelowna, British Columbia, to a woman named Susan Allen who got a bad bad case of conjunctivitis a.k.a. pink eye, after a strange, smelly, unexplained incident in late May. Now, as Canada's Air Traffic Control Agency has officially denied its involvement in the incident and deemed the report a closed one, one alternative explanation remains increasingly likely. It may have been a poopsicle to Susan Allen. The The popsicle explanation, shouldn't it be poopsicle, is not likely to offer comfort or closure, especially in light of the response from Canada's aviation authority. One explanation for the falling poop suggested that the plane, uh, a plane illegally dropped it from an aircraft during flight, a move that the Canadian aviation regulations deems punishable. You're probably one of the oldest airplanes around, Jeff. Can you discharge your uh, tanks in the air? No, we cannot. This is absolute rubbish, but do carry on. Oh, it, it is rubbish and and waste. <laughs> uh, but no, we cannot purposely jettison poop from our toilets, people. Come on. Well, anyway, the, the article goes on. We'll put the uh, link to it in the show notes. So we're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, but they talk and about talking basic- about a low altitude bilge pump. Excuse me? <laughs> well, I don't know if we can really talk about the low altitude bilge pump on our show, but uh, they do mention that. The uh, the nowadays the uh, new generation of poopsicles are uh, not blue anymore because most airplanes now use a a vacuum suction kind of a system and they don't use the blue juice as we do in the um, MD eighty series that Dana and I fly. The MD nineties have the more modern vacuum system and they're uh, no blue juice on those. Um, but uh, I don't know. What do you? What's your in-depth, uh, detailed analysis, uh, Captain Nick, regarding this? Well, considering that the uh, the tanks that all this uh, muck goes into is held uh, securely within the fuselage, it would not only have to leak from the tanks; it would then have to leak through the aircraft skin somewhere. And uh, you know, the chances of you getting any significant uh, leak that is not spotted. I mean, the airplane would stink if you had a, a leak from uh, the the toilet system. Um, it is rubbish. Now, we do jettison um, grey water from the sinks. Uh, that goes out from the sinks. It goes out through a discharge pipe, through a heated pipe on the outside of the aircraft, and just uh, 
sprays into the atmosphere and uh, it evaporates. Uh, and there is a faint possibility that if the heater on that uh, um, discharge pipe fails, then you can end up with um, you know, a lump of ice there that will fall off. But that is just water from the sinks. It's, it's not from the toilets. So uh, I, I personally have never heard of, uh, of anything from the, uh, the toilet flush system getting out of the aircraft it's uh it's discharged into a a honey cart uh out of the airfields we land at and it's you know this perfectly secure system i really enjoyed that um at least canada's air traffic control agency officially denied involvement because i'm really not sure <laughs> not sure how, how they, they would be involved anything to do with it anyway <laughs> well um, they have a remote control switch in their control right. panel that uh, uh you know operates that yeah. poop valve yeah. uh now i will say and i think dana will back me up on this that uh, the especially the um, the older system with the the blue juice uh they there are um lavatory service panels on our airplane where they there's like a, a valve that uh, they you know activate to uh to put in the new fluid and take out the old or vice versa and it's possible for that valve to be not fully seated or closed and it's and that's one of the things we look at when we do a, a walk around inspection and we look at to see if there's any evidence of blue fluid on the uh, on the side of the fuselage and if so then that might be an indication that there might be some sort of leak and it's possible that uh, fluid could leak in flight if you didn't notice it uh, while on the ground Okay. Um, probably. He just sent us a message. Internet it's, uh, here is not good. Uh, is that why British Airways paints the bottom of its aircraft all blue? Um, we do so too. Actually, <laughs> it might be. Do. Okay. But you know what? There's a there's a regional airline uh, here in the U.S. Uh, and their call sign is Blue Streak. No, that's true. <laughs> and I, every time I hear Blue Streak, I'm sorry if you fly for that airline. You know, I love it. It's I, that's what I think of. I, I think of the blue juice streaking on the fuselage. I'm thinking whoever came up with that call sign probably didn't know. You know, the some alternative definitions of blue streak. Anyway, so is Dana? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, you don't look happy. Are you okay? No, I'm not. Why the uh, internet's not very good? Not at all. Okay. <laughs> Let's just move on then. I did this entire trip <laughs> just so oh. I could be here. Oh, no. And it stinks. Well, hey, um, that goes with this piece of feedback. Yeah, well, no pun intended, but, uh, you know, I was going to add comment if, if it actually holds true here with this Internet. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, it, it, it would be very difficult for poop per se, to fall out of an airplane because it has to come, as Nick was kind of talking about, it has to come through a sealed system, leak through from that sealed system, and then leak through the aircraft skin or the door, uh, the access door. So I would very, very highly likely think that the amount of actual solid matter that could get out of that would be very, very minimal at, at best, if at all. And then the only possibility on a newer, uh, well, on the new system, I would very highly doubt anything gets out. But on our system, of course, if anything's going to fly, it's just going to be blue urine. Yeah. Or a mixture of, of some sort. So it's, it's it, I would find it very hard that science, professional scientists or whoever can, uh, can identify unless they're doing a, 
an analysis under a microscope of some sorts. But um, I would I would be in the same camp that I think this is very highly unlikely. Well, Susan got pink eye, and it was obviously the Canadian air traffic control system's fault. <laughs> yes, it, it had <laughs> to absolutely had to come be. on or birds yeah. or you know. birds. Yeah. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Doctor Steph. Well, she's a doctor. She knows these things. Yes. Or pterodactyls. Also more plausible than what they're suggesting here. <laughs> exactly. It's hard to sue a bird, though. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> definitely not going to get any monetary compensation out of that one. No. All right. Might get a few eggs from the chicken. Our lovely community member, Tanya, sent us some feedback. She says, I wanted to share this very cool blog post by Aunt Pruitt, a Twitter friend who you may recognize as an occasional guest on the This Week in Tech podcast. He is also an aviation geek, an av geek, and this post talks about the 360-degree cockpit tours that are available on the French Air and Space Museum's website. And then she gave us a link to that. And she said, I just thought that the APG community would be interested as are all the best, as always, clear skies and tailwinds, Tanya. And this article, as she mentions, talks about the uh, Air and Space Museum in Paris. And uh, it's associated website. And I didn't check it out yet, but apparently there is a way that you can look uh, through this thing and see some 360 degree views of various cockpits, um, including, uh, I'm sure there must be an Airbus in there somewhere, but uh, the screenshot I'm looking at right now is uh, an Alouette 3, a B-26C Invader. Alouette. 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 Oh, sorry. Alouette. Yeah, that's the one. Um, Boeing 727, Boeing 747, Concorde etc. So uh, you should check it out. We're going to have the link to this site in our show notes. And uh, we thank you, as always, Miss Tanya, for your relevant and great feedback. Gabrielle. Nick, if Nick sings again, I'm going to get off this podcast. You shouldn't have, Dana. You shouldn't have. <laughs> That's double daring him right there. Yeah. I've got lots of songs. You want another one? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. No. The one in French is okay. Oh, the sexual life of a camel. Oh, okay, there was one. It's stranger than anyone thinks. What? No. That reminds okay, me. It's good, good being on the podcast. See you later. No, no, no. <laughs> don't go, Dana. There was there was a, a moment that, um, that I failed to take advantage of when I was driving uh. with Nigel and Nick in Nigel's car. I think it was Nigel's car, or maybe it was Nick's car. I mean, it doesn't matter. And uh, I was sitting in the back seat, and these guys were singing the song, and I'm not going to mention the name of the song, because I think it's somewhat offensive. <laughs> maybe. But uh, actually, they say if you listen to the words, it's not really. But uh, these guys were having a great time. We'd, we would, had gone to a pub, and, uh, and, and they were slightly lubricated, and uh, they were just uh, singing away. And I thought I was recording this on my phone, but then after they finished, I looked down, and of course... I wasn't recording, so I missed Calma. the opportunity. Karma. I know. Anyway, uh, it's in my memory, though, forever. Thank you very much, Nick and Nigel, for that. 
Alouette, gentil Alouette. Alouette, gentil Kumite. Gabrielle, or Gabriel, your choice, says, <laughs> number five, Dear Sir, I am registering a complaint. No, wait a minute. That, that's not it. Uh, I am one of those passengers who, when in flight, suddenly adopts a fear of heights, death, turbulence, the whole package, basically. And I realize that my paranoia, paranoia is irrational. Yet I noticed that informing myself on the way planes fly and the whole process calms me down greatly. This brings me to a question. Is it dangerous when planes pass through cumulus, cumulonimbus clouds when they lower their altitude before landing? I've read on endless sources that thunderstorms slash cumulonimbus clouds can cause aircraft to crash or at least present a potential danger. Is it then dangerous for a plane to pass through cumulonimbus clouds just before landing? I ask this because there are multiple times in the past where I was in a plane which landed in the city where it was really cloudy and rainy and the plane shakes terribly each time we pass through the rainy clouds just before landing and I don't see any website which mentions this. In addition, how does the air traffic control or pilots in general handle the fact that some cumulonimbus clouds form out of nowhere and unpredictably? Please do not feel obligated to answer immediately and thank you in advance for your time. Kind regards, Gabriel. So, I think we have a lot of answers for you, Gabriel. And who wants to go first with this one? I'm looking at my co-hosts, and they're all chopping at the. Oh, I see a hand right there, Nick. Oh, oh love to. Um, so, a QNIM is uh, a rain-bearing uh, cloud of cumulus form. So, it's one of those ones that grows and looks a bit like a cauliflower. Um, and uh, they, when they're big and severe, and uh, they uh, and carry a lot of lightning and heavy rain in them, they can carry a lot of turbulence, and that'll throw the airplane around. So generally speaking, if you've uh, got a severe QNIM and it will uh, show up on the radar uh, in different colors, and uh, if it's uh, a bad one, we will see the um, heavy amounts of uh, rain and possibly even hail in the middle of it showing up very clearly on the radar, and we will avoid those um, definitely. Um, so the cumulonimbus can actually be a cloud you might fly through or certainly the edges of if it's not particularly bad if it's a smallish one doesn't have a lot of vertical extent but certainly the major ones that boom up to the troposphere uh through the uh, tropopause sorry they're the ones to really to avoid um and they can be dangerous uh, if an aircraft uh, decides to try and navigate through one so we do we give them a wide berth um going underneath them uh, on the approach uh, can be also a problem. Um, normally, uh, you're not actually flying through the turbulent air of the cloud itself and you're b below the base of it. Uh, it can be reasonably clear. You might be flying through some heavy rain, uh, but what you're really looking for there uh, are severe downdrafts and uh, the worst of which are usually called microbursts. So that is a big, heavy column of very cold air and uh, rough and rain coming out of the cloud, hitting the ground, uh, and spreading out. It gives you an effect which uh, can be uh, relatively dangerous on the approach. So it starts off by you hitting a, a quite a strong headwind, which makes you rise up above the glide slope. Uh, you tend to throttle back because you're going faster now because you've hit a headwind and 
push the nose down and maintain the glide slope. And then you pass through the headwind and move into the tailwind area. And there you've got your throttles back at idle uh, and you're in a big downdraft and you're low on airspeed. Now you suddenly hit a tailwind and that can rob you of even more speed. And that's what often causes or has in the past caused a few accidents. So we're, because we're aware of all these uh, phenomena, we avoid them. Uh, there are a lot of airfields where, you know, places where they can occur that, um, you know, you get uh, good warnings from them. Uh, they have uh, wind shear detectors uh, that the tower will tell you about. They uh, obviously measure the uh, wind speeds uh, and tell you about them. And, and we as pilots are trained to deal with them and we can cope with them well. Most of the time, they're not going to do that. Uh, microbursts are relatively infrequent uh, and only occur uh, in certain areas. And when we go to those areas, we're usually pre-briefed and ready for them. And if the weather is particularly forecast to be particularly bad, then obviously, if necessary, we will just hold off until that weather clears or, if necessary, divert. Uh, just bear in mind, a thunderstorm is a relatively short-lived phenomena. Um, unless it's being continually regenerated and recurring, it can... Um, build up and disappear again in as little as 30 minutes. So it's it's not actually uh, a major problem. So we treat them with great caution. We avoid them whenever possible. If we do go close to them, it's because we've assessed them as being relatively benign. And uh, don't forget, we're the guys trying to keep ourselves safe. We're never going to put ourselves into danger. And as a consequence, those sitting behind us are not going to be put in danger either. Well, well my thoughts on this, and number one, you don't necessarily have to be in clouds to get some uh, turbulence. There's this thing called clear air turbulence, which we have no ability to actually predict or um really be able to avoid uh, pre-rough air, um, which is quite common. Now, as far as flying through cumulus uh, clouds, a lot of times, as, as Nick was just talking about, especially in the southeast um, United States or any tropical area, there are a lot of cumul cumulus clouds that you just don't have a choice but to go through. And what uh, what causes that is, is and Nick did a great job of explaining, but what causes that is extreme updraft and downdrafts or, or temp temperature differentiation within the cloud. So it causes um, the up updrafts and downdrafts, and that's what the actual turbulence is. It's not necessarily a cloud. It usually is associated with cumulus clouds for sure. Um, and the best way I can describe for you to be able to put a, a picture to it, if you have ever been by the ocean, and you, if you're watching a, a very calm sea and it just kind of comes in and just doesn't really uh, break any waves, then that's really most of the time we're flying through smooth air. But when you see big waves breaking over rocks and seeing splash, you know, the water splashing up, it's very turbulent. That's kind of what you can imagine what's inside that cumulus cloud. And I, I can tell you one thing, as is, is, is Nick had said, as well, I, I wouldn't uh, have in the past tried to avoid um, those types of clouds. Even when we're coming into approach, we'll, we'll often deviate around those clouds because we are very well aware of how turbulent those clouds are. But more times than not, those you know those clouds are, are creating 
not nearly as bad as turbulence as you're perceiving. So some of it's already uh, perceiving the fact that they don't like turbulence. Um, any type of movement on the aircraft is, is of course, going to be um, a little bit extra frightening or alert, you know, alert, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? trying to think of a specific word and I can't think of it. So anyways, uh, basically what I'm trying to say is that you'll, you'll be more sensitive to it because of the fact that, you know, it, it's something that scares you. Um, and we as, as professional aviators in, in our judgment would not necessarily go through something that's going to be uh, severe in nature, certainly. And, and moderate is very, very rare uh, occurrence, but moderate turbulence to us, is probably what you would consider to be severe turbulence and scare, scare the other living daylights out of you. So that's what we try to, to as professional um, passenger pilots. Now, I don't know about the cargo world. I can't speak for them. But as professional uh, passenger pilots, that's what's always going through my mind. I know that for a fact. I'm sure Nick and, and um, Jeff always uh, you know, think the same way, and that is you know, we're trying to do everything we can do in the flight deck not only to get us there safely, that's job number one, but number two is is be as smooth as we possibly can and choose the path that's going it, to it's going to cause the least disruption. And it's not uncommon for us to have to go through some some of those cumul cumul clouds. We just avoid the thunderstorms. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a good point. You know, you're talking about um, Gabriel a couple times where you're. You've been in a plane that's landed in a city that's been cloudy and rainy, so that's not necessarily a cumulonimbus cloud. You know, if there's not a lot of upward development of it with, you know, associated strong winds and thunder and lightning, you can still get reasonable turbulence out of those types of weather systems as well that aren't um, quite as dangerous as, as flying through cumulonimbus clouds. So um, just to point out, there's, you know, rain showers do come in different varieties and, um some are more forgiving than others. And, and that's a good point, Doc Steph, is because, like, for example, in the Northeast U.S. And, and, and in England, a lot of times you get those low stratoform clouds that are just low-hanging and associated with high winds. So up in the Northeast, you might have a Northeaster where you have, you know, 30, 40-mile-an-hour winds on the ground. It doesn't, you know, you're going through, you know, low, low, Nimbo low clouds. Nimbo stratus, right? very low to the ground and uh, you know those types of winds can cause uh, cause turbulence without you even being near a cumulus cloud i seem to remember a certain day in uh, boston back in april of this past year that was similar to what you just described yeah the one that you ran in yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's for and it's very it is it is it is very common up uh, you know up in the northeast and certain times of the year down in the southeast but northeast i mean it's very common to just have a low cloud layer you know 500 foot cloud layer that's only a thousand fifteen hundred feet thick and and have ex excessively strong opposing winds between layers so you come down and in you know it's you get the winds gusting off the ocean and it can be 20 30 mile an hour winds and or, you know, 15, 20 knot winds. And uh, lo and behold, that's causing all the turbulence too. So you're, that's a very good point, Steph. Yeah, as as mentioned, uh, it's usually the phenomenon or phenomena that uh, occur associated with cumulus cumulonimbus uh, cloud formations and the, uh, the amount of rain and rain 
uh, rainfall rates, etc., and uh, associated uh, wind shears and microbursts that can come from them. But uh, many, many years ago, before we had the technology that we have today with uh, advanced radar, um, there were a couple of incidents where airplanes just they didn't have radar and they flew through some pretty nasty storms and actually broke up in flight. But that's a very rare thing anymore, unless you purposely fly through one of these really nasty uh, mesoscale uh, thunderstorm cells. And our technology now is that we can see these things and we uh, can take steps to avoid them. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, we assess based on our tools and uh, we decide whether or not uh, in, we need to give something a, a, a large berth or perhaps even divert to another airport because of them if we deem that the uh, storms are severe enough to uh, be unsafe yeah, and a lot of a lot of times uh, especially when you go into bigger airports like New York and in and uh, down in Atlanta Charlotte if the, the storms are severe enough they won't even let you come in period they're going to put you in holding and you're not going to be flying. So Nick, you don't like my uh, terminology. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm watching the chat room. Going, what? <laughs> this guy's critiquing me in the chat room, though, which is much more apt uh, is um, it was something that someone mentioned on a previous uh, podcast um, about the passenger beside them was a bit nervous thinking the aircraft was uh, going up and down a huge distances and uh, uh, they were just in relatively uh, benign turbulence mm -hmm. um, and that was to pull up the their phone and use the flight radar 24 or there are other apps available and put their flight on there and there you can see actively what the aircraft is actually doing how high it's going how low it's going what its flight path is and uh, I, I think if if you're concerned about what the airplane is doing that is a great app to put on your phone and monitor your progress. And it gives you a lot of information about what the flight's doing. And when you think that the airplane uh, it might be going plummeting down towards the ground, you can actually look and see that, oh, it's not. It's, not. it's, it's, it's re re maintaining a good, stable flight path. Yeah. Good point. Uh, we have some breaking news. In the middle of our show here, I uh, just received, I uh, was watching uh, the chat room, James Balch uh, sent us a link to a tweet uh, from Mexico. An Aeromexico Embraer E-190 has suffered an accident shortly after takeoff in Durango Airport in Mexico. And uh, that's all the detail that I have at this moment. But uh, just thought I'd mention that uh, looks like we have another crash which is not, not good. Been a good well, year. Not very good news at all. No. Maybe we'll be talking about that on the next show. But thank you, James, for keeping all of us aware as to uh, what's going on in the aviation world. And uh, hopefully um, not too many uh, injuries or fatalities in that. Uh, okay. Um, so I think we sufficiently answered uh, Gabriel's question i mean we could probably talk for an hour on it if we wanted to but uh that's one of those things you know you look at those little puffy cumulus clouds out there and you think god they look so soft like a little cotton ball how in the world could they possibly be bumpy if you flew through them but uh that's one of nature's practical jokes i think right? so. <laughs> what's that 
visible moisture. It's going to create a little bit of yeah bumps along the way. For sure. All right. Um, Brett writes, number six, on my way to Oshkosh, I stopped for dinner and a beverage in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Founders Brewery, a really nice place to go, where I saw this t-shirt. So obviously they have a beer named Curmudgeon. Any relation to the old pilot slash curmudgeon? And uh, he sent us a snapshot for us to look at. And I think we've talked about this beer. I think we've talked about the the beer, uh, the label on this particular beer. Uh, brew. Yeah, remember I brought I brought actually brought a four pack and showed yeah, it that's to, right. to uh, Nick uh, way back when, probably episode two forty two fifty or so. Now this gentleman on the uh, on the photo is is a much older chap than. Uh, the old pilot curmudgeon and uh, and not as good looking, I might add as well. But uh, there is some you're resemblance. A, you're a gentleman, Jeff, but uh, <laughs> and I don't have a, a funny hat like that. You should get one. I don't think so. No. Okay. <laughs> it almost looks like Dana's hat a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, wow. A little bit. <laughs> not really. No, not really. Uh, it has to be a little more. Coming. It has to be a little more like that. A little bit. Side oh, there you go. And darker. Wrinkled. There's definitely resemblance now. We're getting there. Yeah, and in the in the in the nose territory. I mean, uh, Dana's yeah, Dana's nasal organ and that nasal much. organ. <laughs> They're very similar, don't you think? Is that a medical term? <laughs> no. Okay. Definitely not. It's probably a Does it have anything term. to do with the blow up doll? I mean, from earlier that I missed. <laughs> No. <laughs> no. Also not. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Brett. I'm glad you enjoyed the uh, the food and the beverages at Founders. And uh, thanks for uh, showing us that photo. We'll have that in the show notes if you're interested, folks. Um, number seven, Steve uh, sends us an update to the incident that we talked about a few episodes ago. The uh, uh, China Air Cargo uh, 747 that excuse Excurted? Excurted? No. Um, had an excursion. Had, had an excursion. A runway it's excursion? A yeah. I know. I thought, as it, I was it, saying it, was it, turned thought, into a lawnmower temporarily. <laughs> I've just made a new word now. Excurred. Don't excurred if you know what's good for you. Um, an excursion off the uh, runway 10 left or 9. I don't know which one it was. Uh, ooh. I just heard a big clap of thunder. Speaking of, Speaking of weather and cumulonimbus clouds, um, yeah. Um, so he sent us um, a link. Uh, apparently, there's there's more to the story, and there's some. He said, "Interesting to hear the ops communication and see the pics of the grass." And this is uh, Steve Horn, Captain Steve. Um, and I'm going to click on this. And I'm going to, um, seems like that was not coming from the right place when I heard some audio here. Let me make sure that I have this set up properly. Okay, it's on. Let me see if you can hear the audio. 3544, turn right heading 110. Uh, Dynasty uh, 5148, we are going wrong uh, due to last minute TVA from the wrong way. 5140 heavy roger fighting 090 climb maintain 5000. Yeah, we heard this. Heading 090 climb maintain 5000 dynasty 5148. 135 44 turn right heading 180. Okay. Oh, here communications on Ralphin. Yeah, this is Daryl 45. Yeah. Okay, so I have something kind of 
strange for you. Okay. Um, okay. So we had a um, we got a call from Ops. They China. Hold on a second. Okay, it's a China Cargo Airlines seven forty seven. Okay. That uh, apparently landed in the grass area of ten left. Did a touch and go. Went back up, came around, and then landed on 10 right. But I guess he took out a bunch of signs. Um, the tower's try and he's on his way to, he's taxiing the southeast cargo area right now. The tower's okay. trying to get information from the pilot, but the pilot's not giving up any information whatsoever. So Ops is asking for CPD and aviation to try and intervene and get some information about what exactly happened. So Ops is okay. following the aircraft at this time. And four, I'll start heading out there right now. South, southeast cargo. It's a China cargo airline. Yeah, I know exactly where he's going to go. Okay. Anyway, um, that's about half of the uh, audio from this video, which we'll have a link to. The China Airlines touches down in grass at O'Hare, part two. Um, but just interesting to hear the operations communications, uh, how they're going. Like, okay, how do I describe this? And. And uh, also interesting, I think, that uh, the uh, pilots from that particular flight uh, were avoiding having any discussion at all about what had happened. What? Who? Us? Yeah, what? Well, I do not understand. <laughs> what is that word? It's not in their list. Yeah. <laughs> Aviation phraseology. Oh, and for, um, for Ivor, this has nothing to do with the actual story, but that was an excellent example of a Chicago accent right there. The lady... Um, that we were just listening to. Ah, yeah. Good point. Uh, she sounded American to me. And and in this, well, she is. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. In this video, by the way, uh, there there is some, it's like a slideshow, and they show some of the um, uh, the imprints of the uh, the tires uh, off in, into the grass and some of the pieces of equipment that were taken out. And uh, it was, could have been, a, a, a could have gone a lot worse, I'd say. Uh, mm -hmm. than it did yeah watching the video the surveillance video is pretty impressive too for when, anyone who hasn't done that and when you yeah when you see the 747 have, did you notice how like it was the pitch of the thing was really moving quite uh i don't know how to describe it but it was uh looked like they were hanging on for dear life trying to get that thing back airborne and and uh pointed in the right direction and flying safely doesn't look like a nice smooth transition from touch and go uh, to a, flight old lurch there as he uh, tried, yeah. tried to get it back towards the runway and then go around uh, yeah all right well thank you steve for alerting us to that and again uh, please check it out dear listener uh, by clicking on the link in the show notes uh let's see moving on devon says, uh, just wanted to share this quick YouTube video about robot tugs. Yes, the day is here. Well, at least at Heathrow. And We've then, had six dolls and now we're talking about tugs. Yeah. <laughs> Do you enjoy the robot tugs, Nick? Uh, or have you experienced that? Well, I know. Luckily, um, no, I haven't had. To and where do they tug you? Uh, that's what I'm, my question, really. I, I think uh, you'll need to ask uh, Devin, that's a little bit too personal. Yeah, HR is uh, monitoring this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and notice who's not in this conversation. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's, that's unusual. Makes a change. Uh, he says, Nick, have you seen them or have uh, ever been pushed back by these ground drones? 
Warmest regards from Devin in Sacramento. Nick? No, is the answer. No. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't they, see any when I was no, at Heathrow. No, they seem to be uh, trying trial by uh, another airline. I see. Okay. But they look quite useful. I mean, it's just another way of putting someone out of a job, mind you. But doesn't isn't somebody controlling the tug from a remote location, or are they completely autonomous? Well, it looks like the guy walking uh, on the headset is doing the guiding. I don't know whether they have an additional bloke, but uh, yeah. so I'm, I'm assuming that they will be able to do away with tug drivers and the same guy on the headset that walks back with you will now control the electric tug. I don't know. I don't know. I'm failing to see the advantage. Yeah, I don't really see it either, but it's cool. Interesting uh, nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. Technology. Yay. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yay for technology. Okay. Well, and, and it could be uh, something like um, having to do with, if I can find the darn piece of, here we go. Going green. We're going green. Although, I don't know. We're going Unless they're electric, green. they're probably yeah. not. Oh, I think they are electric. Oh, okay. Part of the point. But, you know, you can have electric tugs with humans steering and driving yes you could right yeah until the tug pushes an airplane into another airplane or an object i mean it's humans too but yeah Hmm. well anyway thanks devin (laughs) uh nine nine uh radio roger uh, has a question for us He said, uh, hi, Jeff. Hope you had a great time in the UK. I did. Thank you, Roger. Here's some feedback. I hope it'll be interesting to the APG community. And again, this is from Radio Roger. And let's take a listen. Greetings, APGers. Roger Stern here, a.k.a. Radio Roger. I'd like to give a shout out to JetBlue. And with that, ask a question. My daughter, who was living in Boston at the time, flew into Newark for a one-day trip. She had booked the last JetBlue flight back that night. Well, there was bad weather in Boston, and as the day went on with flights going back and forth between the two cities, the delay started adding up. And when it was time to fly home, the Boston-bound flight was delayed for a couple of hours. Finally, the plane and crew, which were to handle her return flight, arrived from Boston and Newark, but as you can guess, the crew had run out of legal hours and couldn't return. That would seem to have been the end of it for my daughter and her fellow passengers who would have to wait until the following morning to fly out of there. But JetBlue then did something interesting. There was one more flight from Boston to Newark with a crew that was supposed to overnight in the Newark area. But they had still not run out of hours. So on the fly, no pun intended, JetBlue assigned them and their plane to be the return flight. Well, I've never seen that happen before. My question is, is this unusual? Would Acme add an extra leg to a plane and flight crew at the last minute to get passengers where they are supposed to be? My other question is for Captains Jeff and Dana, who fly multiple legs in one day. If you were supposed to start and end your day in Atlanta, would you still pack an overnight bag in case you get stuck in the wrong city? So those are my questions. This is Radio Roger wishing you blue skies and tailwinds over and out. Thank you, Radio Roger. What a great radio voice he has. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, we do the same thing at Acme on occasion. In fact, I rem- that reminds me of a time that uh, we arrived in Denver and we thought, and we had a nice long layover 
uh, ahead of us. And we were informed as we were taxiing in that we were going to be flying uh, from Denver to uh, LaGuardia. And we thought, huh? (laughs) We thought we were finished with our day. We were already thinking about, you know, where we were going to eat and uh, all the fun that we were going to have in Denver. And they said, yeah, we had an airplane here earlier today that had a mechanical issue and it's delayed now like six, seven hours. And uh, we still, the passengers are still here and uh, we see you still have duty day left and uh, we want you to fly from Denver to LaGuardia. And I'd like to say we were happy to do it. I, I, I'm not really happy to do that, but we felt um, an obligation uh, to do it. And uh, we arrived in New York City very, very late. I think it was like, uh, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And I think I talked about it on an earlier episode a couple of years ago where we got to a hotel that we didn't usually use and they didn't understand how the whole system worked. And we waited for another hour to two hours waiting for somebody from Acme to let these people know that they could give us a room. It was just a big mess. And uh, so, yes, that does happen on occasion. Fortunately for me, it has not happened too many times, but at least we got the passengers, albeit several hours late, but we got them to their destination. And uh, any, any other folks have that kind of experience? I would, I would say it's probably uh, me over Nick for sure, because Nick's, you know, in long haul, they're not going to be able to re- right. rewrite him or change his schedule per se that easily. Maybe could dead could they deadhead you, Nick? But you can't just pick up another flight, correct? Uh, well, they we we can if we've got duty. Yes, we can. Uh, they well, we've shifted around from uh, one flight to a different flight uh, depending on uh, the availability of pilots. We sometimes, uh, you know, they just say, "Look, this this bloke hasn't pitched up. You go fly his flight, and we'll find someone to fly your flight, and you know, you'll just leapfrog." during the day but uh similar sort of problems if you do a turn back and uh, come back into the same uh, airfield um with a problem then uh, you know you're not going to be able to complete the flight so you know i've, I've done uh, done the old trip where i've uh, had to uh you know find hotels for everyone and sort everybody out yeah diversions that sort of thing so it does happen and in in you know that's my same experience as uh, Jeff was talking about. It's it's not uncommon for us to be what's called rerouted, and that is they they change what we are planned to uh, fly, um, and in some cases they'll go ahead and just put you on a new overnight like they would have with the, these pilots, or or they'll just go ahead and deadhead you back to your original overnight depending on how much time you had available. But you know one thing I want to point out is that you are under no obligation to absolutely do something unless you feel as though you you'll be safe and rested and not fatigued so uh, that's a key and that 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 crew you know may have had a long day already but they were legal to do it if they're legal to do it as long as they're rested to do it then why wouldn't you go do it um and, and ultimately we are in the customer service business passenger service business so our job even though it may not always be exactly what we want we may have wanted that long denver overnight or a long pensacola overnight or wherever else it may be um sometimes you just have to do things you just don't like to do you know the other part of that question is uh you know do you bring things along even if you have a day line and uh the short answer to that question is uh 
yes. I don't always necessarily pack another bag. I have my uh, my crew bag that has all my flying equipment in, and there sometimes that I'll just go ahead and throw in just in case a, a shaving kit, uh, you know, vanity kit, and then you know an undershirt and you know other undergarments to make sure that if I do get stuck someplace that I would have fresh things to change into, not necessarily the pants or the shirt, uniform shirt, because generally speaking, um, I'll wear that for at least the pants for more than one day. Uh, it's hard to pack uh, all that the, all that clothing. Uh, not hard to bring an extra shirt, but having extra pants for every day is, is not the easiest thing to do. So that answers that question for you. Yes, and uh, and I've mentioned the story several times on the last eight years of doing the show, or however long it's been, uh, where uh, when I was new, and I think I was a 727, yeah, new 27, 727 co-pilot, fourth from the bottom, uh, talking about lack of seniority. Uh, I was uh, on my first day, I think, of six or seven days on call, and they called me in for a turnaround And so I'm thinking, oh, cool. And this is back in the days before we had roller boards, roller boards. Uh, So the big giant black Samsonite suitcase was the pilot suitcase. And then the big flight kit, you know, with all the Jeps stuff in it. And so it was like very, very heavy stuff on, on both sides. And so when you had the opportunity to go in and not have that big giant Samsonite suitcase full of stuff, uh, you could leave it at home. Uh, then, you know, it was very, um, tempting. And, uh, so I thought, well, it's just a turnaround. So I'll go in and I'll just take my flight kit. And so off I went and did a trip and I was supposed to be home, uh, the, uh, later that night. And then we got delayed and then we were supposed to go from, um, I think from Cincinnati to Atlanta, but we arrived in Cincinnati after the last flight going from Cincinnati to Atlanta. So that means that we had to overnight in Cincinnati and I'm thinking, well, no problem. You know, one night I'll catch our deadhead back home the next day. No, no big deal. I can get uh, usually the hotels we stay in have, you know, toothbrushes and toothpaste and really bad razors and that kind of thing. Uh, to, uh, to use in a pinch if you, if you need it. And so that's what I did. And then while I was, uh, waiting at the hotel to leave the next day, I got a call from scheduling that said, Oh, we need you to now pick up a trip, uh, a Miami trip. This is back when we had a Miami base. And so we're going to deadhead you from Cincinnati to Miami and pick up that trip. And that was like a two or three day trip. And I said, would it be okay if, uh, you routed me through Atlanta so that my wife can bring, a suitcase with stuff in it for me. And, uh, so that's what they did. They routed me through Atlanta and then went down to Miami and, uh, uh, long story short, I ended up, um, flying the entire six or seven days with, um, uh, let's see the Atlanta crew, the Miami crew, uh, Seattle crew, I think a Salt Lake city crew. I, I don't know how many different crews I was with, and I don't remember all the places that I ended up, but it was quite a uh, trip. And so since that time, I learned my lesson. And so I always head to the airport with at least, as Dana said, at least a change of undergarments and a shaving kit and that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, usually I'll just take the whole darn rollerboard with stuff in it and uh, then I'm set. All right. I think it might be time now for us to hear this week's installment of Plain Tales, and it is entitled 
the aluminium aluminum trail. Take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's plane tales. The aluminium trail. James Douglas Jr. was to become the Secretary of the Air Force. Larry Clinton would be a well-known band leader. Richard Cole and Edgar McElroy both flew in the Doolittle Raid. Theodore Stevens' future was to include election to the U.S. Senate. George Olson became a comic book cartoonist who for 40 years drew The Phantom. Bruce Sundan would govern Rhode Island. Vernon Martin was a college and pro NFL footballer who was the starting quarterback for the University of Texas, becoming one of the immortal 13 Longhorns. Gene Autry would be a famous singer-songwriter and gain worldwide fame as the singing cowboy who owned Champion the Wonder Horse, Champion the Wonder Horse. Roy Farrell and Sidney DeCansal would found Cathay Pacific Airways, and perhaps the best known to us, Ernest K. Gann would pen such wonderful aviation fiction as The High and the Mighty, and regarded by many as one of the best aviation books ever written, Fate is the Hunter. As odd a combination as folk as you would ever meet, but the remarkable thing was that they all served together in a little-known, certainly outside of the United States, and little-understood mission during the Second World War. This mission was flown in one of the world's most dangerous areas and in dire conditions. It would destroy hundreds of aircraft and kill many of their crews. Those that survived the awful terrain and weather still faced the threat of being shot down by Japanese fighters. To this day, the fate of over 300 aviators who disappeared is unknown. Most served in appalling conditions, often feeling abandoned and unappreciated, flying in a task that veterans would call the Lost Campaign. To understand the background, we need to delve a little into Chinese history. China had gone to war with Japan in 1937, but by the time the United States entered the Pacific War, Japan, by far the stronger force, had sealed off China from outside supply lines. Its ports had been conquered, and the last rail connection with the Soviet Union, a distant and pitiful lifeline, had been closed in 1941 by a Soviet-Japanese neutrality treaty. The infamous Burma Road lasted a while longer, but when the Japanese captured the port of Rangoon, the Burma Road was left with nothing to carry. The armies of Imperial Japan occupied a swathe of Asia, and their march seemed inexorable. Japan's expansion might have been much more aggressive if not for the valiant and bloody resistance of the Chinese Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek and his fighters offered up in the parts of China that the Japanese did not fully control. In one estimate, 
Chang's soldiers tied up well over a million imperial troops, but the Chinese were poorly equipped with weapons, ammunition and supplies. The Allies, and America in particular, were keen for China to keep the Japanese forces occupied. Should those troops be freed from their duties in China and transferred to the Pacific Theatre, future invasion plans might well be placed in jeopardy. On the 25th of February 1942, President Roosevelt wrote to General George C. Marshall, stating that it is of the utmost urgency that the pathway to China be kept open and he committed 10 C-53 Skytrooper transports for lend-lease delivery to the Chinese National Aviation Corporation to build its capability. Creating an airlift to assist China presented the Army Air Force with a considerable challenge. In 1942, it had no units trained, nor was it equipped for moving cargo and no airfields existed in the Chinese, Burmese and Indian theatres for basing the large numbers of transport that would be required. Flying over the Himalayas was also extremely dangerous and made even more so by the lack of reliable charts, an absence of radio navigation aids and a dearth of weather information. The task was initially taken on by the 10th Air Force and then by the Air Transport Command, and referred to as the India-China Ferry. Beginning in 1942, it was to continue for three and a half years, but would, certainly at the start, be beset with difficulties. The new Air Transport Command was initially a semi-military organisation, with most of its leadership coming from the ranks of airline executives who merely swapped their dark blue civilian uniforms for army khaki. The ATC also drew heavily on the airlines for manpower, using civil airline pilots, radio operators and other aircrew personnel from airlines to crew the transports that had been hurriedly purchased from civilian sources. The India-China Ferry also struggled with poor organisation, an ill-defined command structure and a low priority when compared with other theatres of operation. Ten former Pan Am DC-3s were requisitioned from American Airways, but they sat idle for the lack of crews to fly them to India. Commanders in both India and Burma made claims for jurisdiction over the mission, and a strange shared responsibility for the effort was meted out. Finally, a single airlift commander was appointed, and the first mission, over what was to be called the Hump, was flown in April 1942. A pair of DC-3s departed from Dinjan in the district of Assam in India with a load of 8,000 gallons of aviation fuel. The fuel was intended to resupply the Doolittle Raiders, whom it was hoped would be landing safely in China following their daring raid on Tokyo from the aircraft carrier USS Hornet. However, while still some 650 miles from Tokyo, the task force was spotted by a Japanese patrol craft and although it was sunk, a radio warning had gone out. 
Ten hours early and a couple of hundred miles short of their proposed launch point, the B-25 bombers started and took off. They struck a successful blow against the imagined invincibility of the Japanese homeland before setting course for China. However, the fuel that the airlift carried for them wasn't going to be used. With the extra miles to fly and other unforeseen challenges, the Doolittle Raiders failed to make their destination airfields. They did, however, make it over the Chinese coastline, or in one case the Soviet Union, where they either bailed out or made crash landings. The journey that those who flew the hump to supply the Chinese forces was also full of risk. The official history of the Army Air Force describes it thus. The Brahmaputra Valley floor lies 90 feet above sea level. From this level, the mountain wall surrounding the valley rises quickly to 10,000 feet and higher. Flying eastwards out of the valley, the pilot first topped the Patkia Range and then passed over the upper Chindwin River Valley, bounded by a 14,000-foot ridge. He then crossed a series of 14 to 16,000-foot ridge lines separated by the valleys of the West Irrawaddy, East Irrawaddy, Salween and Mekong rivers. The main hump, which gave its name to the whole awesome mountainous mass and to the air routes which crossed it, was the Sansung Range, up to 15,000 feet high, between the Salween and the Mekong rivers. East of the Mekong, the terrain became decidedly less rugged and the elevations more moderate as one approached the Kungming airfield itself, 6,200 feet above sea level. The Assam-Kunming route was situated in the middle of three Eurasian air masses that were stirred and conflated by the presence of the Himalayas themselves. Moist warm air from the Indian Ocean to the south produced high pressure that swept north whilst cold dry air from Siberia moved south. These lows and highs were extreme, producing violent winds, and when those winds hit the immovable mass that was the world's toilless mountain range, they shot upwards at startling speeds until they cooled and then rushed downward in terrifying downdrafts that hurled aircraft earthwards at stupefying rates of descent. Turbulence inside the cloud mass was severe, pilots reported being flipped upside down by gusts, whilst many others were unable to report anything because they went missing. Hail, sleet and torrential rains lashed the aircraft. Thunderstorms built suddenly into whirling, opaque worlds that not only meant a lack of visibility but also severe icing while the peaks of the hump were waiting. Westerly jet streams sometimes reached 150 miles an hour, and 115 miles an hour was not at all unusual. A trip in a C-47 from China back to India could see ground speeds of only 30 miles an hour, according to some hump stories, and pilots cruising at 16,000 feet might find their aircraft carried uncontrollably 10,000 feet in either direction. The weather was at its worst from February to April, with fierce thunderstorms and heavy icing. May to September was the monsoon season, with even worse thunderstorms. 
October and November meant good weather, which brought out the Japanese fighters, and December and January brought heavy winds, turbulence and more icing. Despite the presence of Japanese fighters, particularly on the more southern routes, the hump was officially declared a non-combat operation, with lower pay scales and less time at home. Communications were poor, aeronautical maps were unreliable, and weather reporting almost non-existent. P-40 fighters, which sometimes escorted cargo planes, came with no radio at all, so the crew members installed ad hoc transmitters built for Piper Cubs. Homing beacons were positioned at every refuelling airport, but the weather often blocked them out. Pilots would sometimes use a commercial radio station just over the border in China as a guide. Maintenance was always an issue, with insufficient spares and a shortage of mechanics. Heat and humidity, bad accommodation and poor food made living conditions difficult, and with the danger and hardships, morale was always a problem. Malaria, dysentery were prevalent diseases, and water could only be consumed after purification by iodine. After the C-47s came the Curtis C-46 Commando, a whale of an aircraft that carried 70% more cargo than the C-47 and boasted two of the finest and most powerful piston engines ever produced, the 2,000-horsepower Pratt & Whitney R-2800 Radial. The aircraft were famously uncomfortable, with passengers having to sit on the floor in a plane with no heater. The C-46 could easily outclimb the mountains, but it was deeply flawed. Its biggest fault were tiny leaks that occurred in wing fuel tanks and lines. Such leaks weren't unusual amongst complex multi-engine aircraft, but in the commando, they were fatal. Curtis had failed to vent the juncture between the wing and fuselage, so the petrol pooled there instead of quickly evaporating. Random sparks from the fuel pumps caused some 20% of all hump C-46 to explode in flight. Eventually, the C-46 were replaced by the Douglas C-54, a variant of the DC-4 airliner, which became the standard long-range aircraft. They could carry ten times the cargo of the C-47 and could fly 4,000 miles. Having a ceiling of 22,000 feet was marvellous, but they were still unpressurised. Those in command of the hump operation were frequently changed. I can only assume that it was an unpopular assignment. One commander would arrive unannounced at the various air transport command bases in India and China with his hair on fire, sacking and reassigning officers whenever he found laxity and incompetence. He became both feared and respected by many of his pilots and hated by the malingerers. He asked more from his aircraft maintainers and crews than anyone had imagined was possible and he was responsible for demanding and getting record tonnages delivered to China, first 10,000 tonnes a month and then almost 24,000 tonnes. He was also responsible for a period of terrible hump accidents.
He admitted that setting new delivery records was more important than bothersome safety procedures. During just one seven-month stretch during his tenure, there were 135 major accidents and 168 of his crew were lost, half of them night-flying crashes, since he had initiated after-dark flying over the hump, saying, "'Airplanes don't need a sleep.'" At one point, every thousand tons flown into China cost three American lives. He lasted just 13 months. Still, during 1944, the hump flights grew exponentially in terms of tonnage, organisation and operational sophistication. It became, quite simply, the world's biggest international airline. 750 aircraft and more than 4,400 pilots. Between August 1944 and October 1945, the hump delivered almost 500,000 tonnes of material from India to China. However, Chiang Kai-shek got less than 2,000 tonnes of it, only three pounds for every 100 that crossed the hump. The 20th Air Force got gasoline and ordnance. Chiang all too often got wine, decorative shrubbery for his house, ping-pong tables, office supplies and condoms and such. The final report stated that the airlift expended 594 aircraft, so many that they left a trail of aluminium over the mountains. At least 468 American and 41 CNAC aircraft were lost from various causes, with 1,314 air crewmen and passengers killed. In addition, 81 aircraft were never accounted for, with their 345 personnel listed as missing. Another 1,200 were rescued or walked out of the mountains on their own. The flight time in the airlift totaled over one and a half million hours, and at the time, the India-China ferry was the largest and most extensive strategic airbridge in aviation history, a testament to those who took part. Their final commander, General Tunner, who went on to command the American contribution to the Berlin airlift, stated... Never in the history of transportation had any community been supplied such a large proportion of its needs by air, even in the heart of civilization over friendly terrain. After the hump, those of us who had developed an expertise in air transportation knew that we could fly anything, anywhere, anytime. I thought thought flying the hump was uh, flying the 747. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> are, uh, yeah, flying when you're uh, you you feeling a bit uh, angry. <laughs> wow, great! Uh, another great to- story told by the old pilot, and um, wow, I- I'd heard that it was quite an arduous uh, arduous um, task to, to uh, be a part of that whole operation, but uh, uh, it was much worse than I thought. 
Yeah, I mean, the losses, just incredible number of losses. And it was, uh, these guys were flying on reduced pay scales because they were considered non-combatants. Um, uh, yet they were, you know, losing hundreds upon hundreds of aircraft, killing uh, well over a thousand guys. I'm going, what? Uh, you know, what were they thinking? But, you know, this, the um, uh, ATC formed the basis, I think, of uh, the um, Air Force's Strategic Air Command uh, ability to move uh, things. So I guess it was the, the, the start of the outfit uh, you flew for jeff yeah, yeah i had no idea that they had anything to do with that at all um so yeah part of my heritage i guess there you go yeah very cool well thank you nick for as always for putting together another another great plane tale yeah welcome all right um moving on with our feedback um steve is this, is this steve uh, horn again Yes, it is. Captain Steve sent us a link uh, to, you've heard of, um, what is it, Captain Roger Victor? That's the guy. The yeah, puppet? The puppet, yes. The mm -hmm. puppet Muppet uh, Captain guy. Well, he has uh, made another appearance on the Airline Pilot Guy show. I'll play a little bit of this. Let me tell you a story what just happened now. I flew into Rochester, New York, and I made a smooth landing. Approach was smooth, touchdown was smooth. As we're rolling out on the runway, air traffic control gets on the radio. Eh, speed tape, Airlines 237, could you make the next high speed for a landing aircraft? And I said, sure, no problem. So I applied more brakes. I slammed on the brakes. Full reversers. That's my reverser sound. And we stopped and cleared the runway. Now, Taxi to the gate, all's hunky-dory, park, get the jet bridge connected, and a passenger feels the need to walk up to the flight deck and tell me what they thought, as if I gave it. He says, hey, who did the landing? And I said, that was me. I did the landing. He says, well, you had it at the beginning, but lost it in the end. What happened there? And uh, I fought the urge to punch him in the mouth. You know, I thought about it, you know, the pros and the cons of punching a passenger in the mouth, and it came down to the fact that I did not want to follow that paperwork, you know, you know, passenger reports, incident report. I didn't want to deal with that. So instead of punching him, I just looked at him and I said, sir, are you in Rochester? He goes, yeah. Are you on the ground? Yeah. Are you safe? Yeah. Well, then I didn't lose a thing. Welcome to Rochester. Get off my plane. And he deplaned. You know, I didn't ask for his opinion. I didn't need his opinion. If he thinks he could do my job better, he should have told me before, and I could have gone home. If you think you could do our jobs better, let us know. Otherwise, sit down, shut up, and enjoy the ride. That's right. Tell me your story about the stupidest thing a passenger ever said to you. I want to know. Make my day brighter. Have a happy Monday and a great week. Bye. Well, Captain RV, um, heard a lot of stupid things said by passengers but i usually just let it roll off the roll off my back and uh what do they say the uh, customer is always right yeah well they're not but when <laughs> no. you're uh, you know it's a question of maintaining your job and uh not being fired for having a sarcastic witty crude comeback sometimes yeah. you just smile and 
Now, I have a feeling that Captain Roger Victor may be embellishing his experiences just a tad bit. After all, he is really a puppet, not a real person. This is true. But at least we don't have to go and say goodbye to our customers at the end of the flight. That's true. That's an advantage of the situation uh, that you have over ours. But, uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, sometimes when you do something, you prang one on or whatever, you, you clear the runway quickly because somebody is, you're trying to help the person out behind you, uh, landing behind you. You know, you just have to kind of just suck it up. And I, as I've mentioned before on this show, I try to use some humor in it. I'll, I'll usually make some kind of an announcement that kind of deflects some of the, uh, comments that I might get from folks. and uh, Yeah, I tried that once when landing uh, in the old days into uh, Lagos. They had, before they resurfaced the runway, the runway surface was incredibly rough. And uh, no matter how smooth you put it down, the rollout, you were going to be bouncing up and down like nobody's business. So I made a bit of a joke on the PA and apologized and hoped that uh, uh, nobody had lost their false teeth. Um <laughs> <laughs> oh, somebody had course, false teeth, obviously. <laughs> and, but of course, um, I had insulted the uh, the this marvelous Nigerian airfield, and there were oh. a lot of Nigerians on board who were just so upset. I mean, they wouldn't accept the fact this was a lousy airfield. Uh, in fact, just appalling in every way, and the runway surface was the problem. They 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 just thought I'd insulted their entire country, and uh, I I basically hit on the flight deck for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to say that again. Well, you know, humor can be a kind of a difficult thing. Uh, you're not, you know, it's hard to know your audience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reason why I don't use humor anymore. I do. I'm usually able to get away with it. Um, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't use retirement. it at work anymore. <laughs> you're close enough to retirement. That you no, I mean, it. I've, I've used it all my 30 years, Dana. And uh, it's never back. Oh, it's only backfired once or twice. But uh, well, I, I think to answer this question, I think the unspoken word is the, the word that hurts the most. I don't think passengers, when they get off the aircraft, when you have the, uh, it, you know, I know, Nick, you don't have to stand there and do it, but I, I prefer to stand there. And it is in our policy manual to go ahead and stand there and say goodbye to everybody as everybody's getting off the aircraft and you say, thank you. Appreciate flying with us. Have a nice day, whatever I happen to be saying. And person looks at you and just, or doesn't even have the courtesy of looking at you and just walks off the aircraft and doesn't even ever acknowledge your existence. I think that's more offensive to me than just people saying that was the worst lane. I need to go see my chiropractor. So I, that's, that's my pet peeve, um, is the unspoken word. People are just rude and don't e even acknowledge you. Yeah, but I guess I'm so used to that now. It doesn't, doesn't offend me anymore. But a lot of antisocial people out there, that's for sure. And Ivor, I do worry about you, sir. He said that he thinks that um, Captain R RV is a very handsome puppet. Yeah, he is. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> well, I kind of worry about you now. Fair um, enough. Moving on. All right. Uh, let's see. Thanks, Steve, for uh, submitting that uh, link for us. Josh, a new listener, writes, 
I've only been listening for a few weeks, but already have the syndrome. Thanks for putting together such an excellent podcast. I have to say, I always look forward to Captain Nick's plane tales, and I'm slightly jealous of the fact he once flew the elegant and beautiful A340-600. And but still do. I was going to say, do you have something to tell us, Nick? I mean, <laughs> no. uh, you're not going to fly it again? <laughs> well, Nick doesn't know yet, but we'll... Oh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Oh, you, you've got advanced warning of my, oh dear. Yeah, HR. we all know now, Nick. Uh, you're, you're the last Sorry one to, to inform know. inform you. <laughs> I'm no, usually no, the last one to find out. <laughs> no, no, we know nothing of the sort. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, regarding the recent Convair CV340 crash in South Africa, the pilots flying the aircraft were actually Australians. Both are very experienced A380 captains. Well, there you go. With uh, Acme Red Kangaroo. I know both of them and have flown with one, Doug, on multiple occasions on the now-retired RAAF DHC-4 Caribou aircraft. Both pilots survived the accident but face a long recovery. The flight engineer and several people on the ground unfortunately lost their lives. A video of the accident filmed by a passenger has been released to the media this week, and I think we, I think last show we played uh, the, yes, uh, a little bit of that. Yes, we did. Um, Analysis of this video may help explain why the aircraft was an, unable to continue flight on one engine. A friend who is also very who is also a very senior airline captain and former RAAF pilot suggested the following based on analysis of the videos available and previous Convair incidents. Quote, he's quoting now from this guy. Maybe a disruption in water methanol, it was a wet takeoff caused detonation and therefore cylinder failure. A disruption in water methanol supply with the wet takeoff manifold pressure set causes detonation. Different power settings are used for wet and dry takeoffs. Raw fuel was likely then going into the exhaust augmenter area, resulting in a magnesium fire. They don't go out. Augmenter fire has then burnt through the left aileron cables, causing the aileron upfloat seen in the video and making a right turn on the base leg, then being flown. Very difficult and causing uncommanded left roll. The video has sounds of power being increased and decreased, maybe to control the angle of the bank. Augmenter fires are known are a known Convair problem. The aircraft appears to have impacted at about 160 knots. This is all speculation, of course, but it does seem very similar to previous incidents and he has some links below on uh, some previous incidents of the Convair 340. And if that is what has occurred here, the crew did a very good job of keeping it airborne and upright for as long as they did. No doubt their actions saved the lives of most of those on board. Keep up the good work. Best regards, Josh. Thank you, Josh, for your input on, on this. And it's very cool that uh, members of our community actually know some people that are associated with some of the things that we talk about on the show. And, you know, as we said in our analysis, quote unquote, air quotes, uh, of the uh, accident based on what we know and what we've seen in videos and everything else. You know, we're just kind of speculating out our wazoos and uh, we don't know for sure we weren't there. Uh, but that's an interesting uh, speculation by the uh, former RAF, uh, RAAF pilot. What do you guys think? Uh, seemed to have happened very quickly. It wasn't really a very long incident from start to finish. I don't know how long it takes for a magnesium fire to take hold and then uh, cut through the control cables. But uh, just from first impressions, it would uh, perhaps not seem quite long enough for that all to happen. However, 
his explanation of why we were seeing those uh, um, intermittent flames out of the back of the engine. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Steph, any thoughts? No, I just was, was reading back up. Do you say he actually did know both of the pilots? Yes. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, yeah, just thinking of them and their families and hoping for a speedier recovery than uh, they're anticipating. Yes, please do convey to them if, Josh, if you get a chance to talk to them uh, sometime during their uh, long recovery or after, uh, please uh, give our regards from the APG crew and APG community that, um, you know, we we hope that they um, recover quickly and uh, that, uh, well, I don't know what else to say, but uh, yeah. Back to back to work and flying at some point in the exactly. not too distant future. Exactly. Okay, uh, let's move on with uh, Tarek or Tariq. Last uh, hello, APG crew. Last week, the instructor who signed off the very first flight in my logbook over one or over eleven years ago, and went on to teach me how to fly, passed away in an accident. It was devastating to me, so I wrote a piece, which. I have read out loud for you. This audio feedback is a little long and talks a little bit about the reality of general aviation when it comes to safety and what we need to be thinking about when we lose a close friend. Love the show. Happy flying. And here we go. Hello, APG crew. Tag Mary Face here. It's a bit of a long audio, but hopefully Liz won't chuck it out because it's something that a lot of pilots think about and only speak about it when, when unfortunate things happen. And... Something unfortunately happened recently, which affected me quite deeply. So I wrote a piece about it and I wanted to share it with you. So here goes. I have been flying since 2007, but it's only been since 2015, since I left university and got back to my flight training, that I finally got myself fully immersed in the industry, having spent a year flight instructing and now doing survey work. As a pilot, you tend to think you understand the inherent risks of, of general aviation. After all, the safeguards that make airline travel so safe aren't there, such as multi-pilot crews, stringent maintenance, and most importantly, intense emergency training on a regular basis. Nevertheless, it's still a shock when the death of someone you know occurs. The first time I found out about a flight instructor I knew who died, I was actually at a job interview for the very for the first sorry for the very flight school he was working for. I met John two years prior when I was doing my flight instructor training. He was very well respected and loved by all. The weather was borderline VMC, and so my check flight with the chief pilot had been cancelled. But two aircraft were coming in from another of the school's bases for maintenance. The first aircraft to depart was a Piper PA-28, and it was being piloted by John and his students. The second aircraft, a Cessna 152, was being flown by two ex-students of the school, who are now both active commercial pilots. The alarm bells rang when the 152 landed, but there was still no sign of the Piper aircraft, which should have arrived earlier. The phones at the flight school began to ring, and a somber mood and quickly enveloped the building. Eventually, a representative from NATS, the National Air Traffic Service, came into the flight school 
and pulled the manager into a quiet room to talk to her privately. Five minutes later, she came out crying. Being responsible for the school, however, she needed to jump into action. Calls had to be made, journalists would soon be making contact, and reports had to be filed. The plane had gone down, and it seemed that neither of the occupants had survived. The two commercial pilots stood to the side, speaking in low voices. They had been supposed to sit in the back of another aircraft flown by the missing instructor and student in order to get back home. I decided to act at this point. It was clear that everyone was incredibly busy and in emotional distress, so I took it upon myself to take the two commercial pilots back home, despite the fact that it was a two-hour drive in the opposite direction of my house. It was the least I could do in the dire circumstances. As we drove, we contemplated on what would happen next. We thought about their families. The student was a foreign national. We thought about the shock and grief his family would feel upon hearing the news of his death, just when he was finally achieving his dreams. We thought about John's wife, a woman who, had fiercely, who was fiercely dependent on him. We also thought about his mother, whom he had picked up from a major airport earlier that day. He had dropped her off at his house before going to work. Little did she know she would never see her son again. This tragedy unsettled me deeply. I didn't feel the personal grief that those around me felt, but I did feel a sense of shock and uncertainty. John was a well-respected instructor, known for his attention to detail and his unforgiving safety precautions. A man who had made instructing his career. If he couldn't get through a career of flying GA aircraft safely, who could? Maybe I should quit flying, I thought. It took me a long time to recover from this shock. I never flew for that school in the end, as I got offered a more attractive position as a survey pilot. But the thought that flying small aircraft isn't as safe as I've always felt still lingers to this day. About six months after John's unfortunate demise, I found out that my PPL instructor passed away after his aircraft hit the ground on takeoff when he was flying with a student. The man who had taught me how to fly, who once spent two hours of his personal time helping me prepare for the ICAO English radio telephony exam, and who had always encouraged my passion for flying, was gone. One of my biggest role models lost forever. He left behind a wife and two children, and countless adoring friends and students. To me, Frank was a mentor. He was the type of instructor who just understood his students' needs. He, unlike many instructors, including myself, never over-explained things. He showed you just the bare minimum, and then sat next to you and watched quietly and contently as you learned to fly by yourself. He would answer questions and stop you from doing anything dangerous, but he was a firm believer of do learning by doing. Frank was quiet and good-natured. He was also a safe pilot in my eyes, and that of many others. His accident, still fresh in my mind and heart, is puzzling, incomprehensible. When you read a detached, impersonal accident report, it's easy to see where a pilot goes wrong. This time, though, it could be more personal. 
I was blind. I guess I still am. Was it a mechanical error? Was Frank fatigued? Maybe if I had been in the flight school? Pointless, meaningful, harmless questions. This time, although unsettled, I understand and accept the tragedy, even if I grieve for the loss of a friend and mentor. I hate it when people use someone's death as a life lesson. We should accept that sometimes tragic things happen and we should just simply grieve and move on. In aviation, however, this sort of thinking is unacceptable. And so we learn. Flying general aviation aircraft is not as safe as we pilots like to believe, or perhaps even delude ourselves into believing. We fly because we love it, because it's our livelihood, or because it is who we are. In my short career so far, I've heard of many deaths in general aviation, all of which happened to, I quote, good pilots. We are good pilots, until the day we are not, and the fates decide to be unforgiving. I certainly remember making stupid and dangerous decisions, which I regret. And if a pilot tells you that has never happened to them, then they are either lying, or they have never left the traffic pattern of their local airport. I don't want to die in an airplane accident. The safest thing for me to do, therefore, is to stop flying. But I can't. Because like John, and like Frank, flying is also part of who I am. All I can do is always ensure that I make the safest decisions and never break my personal code of conduct that defines to me what a safe pilot is. This, hopefully, will keep me, keep me safe. The death of our friends is a somber reminder that what we are doing is dangerous. We are defying the laws of physics. And that we, the human being, are the best weapons against such tragedy. In the memory of those who die flying, never stop learning. Never ease up on safety, and continue in your passion of flight. Apologies for the long feedback, APG crew. I love the show. Take care, and happy flying. Thank you so much for that uh, sober reminder that, uh, well, aviation is not without its risks, but neither is life. Yeah, exactly. You know, and everything is calculated risks versus benefits. Um, I think the benefit we all get from flying outweigh the potential risks and, you know, he summed it up pretty nicely. I don't need to elaborate too much, but the way to mitigate those risks is to always, you know, have a healthy respect for what it is that you're doing and the equipment that you're working with and the people you're engaging in the activity with and always continue learning to be the safest pilot or, you know, whatever the activity is that you have up-to-date knowledge and training to mitigate all those risks. But yeah, it's always, you know, it's always tragic when things like that happen, especially, you know, accidents because they, of their unexpected nature. They come about suddenly. It's it's hard to take, hard to process. And you can't have help but have a little bit of that uh, feeling of, you know, what would I have done in, in that scenario if it were me? Um, would the outcome have been any different? And that's hard to, to deal with, I think, on an emotional level. And it's especially difficult when you have a personal connection with somebody who is... sure lost their life. Yep. Yep. Well put, Steph. Good news I have for all of us. Uh, in the chat room, we have uh, some news regarding the crash that we had talked about earlier in the show. 
that was occurring while we were recording today's show, the uh, E-175. E-190. Or E-190, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like uh, the governor of Durango on his Twitter account confirmed that there are no dead amongst the 97 passengers and four crew members on board, but up to 85 are injured. And I also saw something about the fact that uh, they attempt, <clears throat> excuse me, attempted to abort their takeoff because of uh, bad weather. But uh, I guess uh, it was uh, an excursion beyond the end of the runway, and that's why they ended up crashing. But of course, we'll know more as the investigation continues. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of what I've been uh following along on Twitter here, both Aeromexico's Aeromexico's, uh, Twitter account and then some of the officials in Mexico. Um, And that all looks to be up-to-date information. Okay. Well, good. I mean, it's it's, it's not good that people were injured, but it's good that uh, no fatalities as of yet. So, Correct. All right. Um, I don't know if you all saw this video. Uh, I saw this a few weeks ago. Uh, Ham Radio Jim writes in and says, uh, how about this? Uh, no comment. The video speaks for itself. And he has a link to a YouTube video showing an Emirates A380 taking off from uh, an island. Was it Mauritius? Is that the way you pronounce that? M- yeah, Mar- that would be correct. Okay. Um, I don't know about you, but when I saw this at first, I'm thinking, I don't know. It looks kind of like uh, there's something there's something about the quality of the video that doesn't look real to me. Almost looks like one of those flight simulation kind of um, videos that you see. Um, did you guys have a chance to look at it? I've just seen a couple still shots here and there, um, but that's about it. Yeah, the, the airplane almost looks like it looks too perfect. <laughs> It's it too, looks too clean. Computer generated. Yeah. Um, and then I, I read some other places that said, if you look at the, the waves uh, in some of the um, video, they don't look like they're moving the right way. I don't know. Uh, you know. People are like analyzing the heck out of this. But I think that if this were an incident where a drone was slightly off the departure path of this A380 taking off from this island, that uh, there would have been more news about it like on the Aviation Herald or whatever, maybe there, maybe there is, I don't know, maybe I didn't see it, but uh, I, I think it's fake, uh, personally, but uh, uh, if it's not, then whoever's flying the drone is an idiot. Yeah. Well, yeah, agree that. take that for granted. Um, yeah, the, the drone seems to move quite rapidly for uh, across towards the flight path as well, the aircraft I'm thinking, and it, it doesn't quite look like it's um, a stable, or oh, sorry, it's more stable than it should be. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, a bit with you, and certainly some of the stills, you know, you look at yourself, well, that airplane does not look real. Yeah, there's a point where it's kind of coming up to the a beam position of the drone, and you see the uh, the sun glint as it goes across the top of the fuselage of the 380. And it was like, it's almost too perfect. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, I don't think that it would look like that. I think it might be a flight simulator. Yeah. It does look like one of those flight simulator um, yep. programs. Anyway. Um, but Hey, good, uh, good effort by whomever produced the thing, I guess. Um, we're getting close to the end of our show. Uh, I think we're getting around the 245 mark. Um, just quickly looking at those items that are still in our feedback folder. We're going to do our best to knock out as many as we can. Um, 
I think I'll, I'll uh, push this particular item number 15 to the next show because it involves some um, some audio and I think we can have a, a pretty good discussion about this and I don't think we have enough time on today's show to discuss it um, in a manner that is uh, you know the appropriate for our show so we'll we'll, um, we'll uh, table that for the next episode um, and I think that also uh, this one number 16 the transition from military to civilian flying again that that might lead into a longer discussion so i'm going to hit uh number 17 i think we can quickly talk about this one uh ralph uh writes an ohio man called in a bomb threat so he would not miss his united airlines flight and uh there's a link to this from apple.news and ralph walker says i think he got away cheap so the article goes on to say, Ohio man called him bomb threat so he would not miss his flight. And now he is going to jail, according to the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky. Or no, I'm sorry. Um, oh, there must be a photo here of this uh, Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky International Airport. That's where he called the bomb threat in, or at least that's where the flight was departing. Uh, he called the bomb threat in because he was afraid that he was going to miss his flight. And he was sentenced to on Thursday to four months in prison and ordered to pay a fine. Dana. Oh, there you go. The guy's name's Dana. Perfect. What, what else can you say there? <laughs> Dana Carter of Dayton made a series of calls to the airport claiming there was a bomb on the Dallas, Texas bound United airlines flight in October, I guess last year, the 40 year old allegedly made the false reports because he was worried he was going to miss the flight. Oh, I must've said something that, uh, Siri. Hey Siri. Hi, Siri. Hi, Siri. <laughs> Thank you said you. bomb and she got excited. Thank you, Siri. <laughs> Darn it. Uh, let's see. So they ended up uh, canceling the flight because of the bomb threat. So yay. <laughs> it had the effect he was looking for, apparently. Oh, no, actually not. He was hoping to make the flight, but it was canceled <laughs> because of his, his false report. And he... Um, his attorney admitted the false threat was a foolish act. And in addition to the jail time, he is ordered to pay $7,700 in restitution to United Airlines for the canceled flight. And he's also going to be on federal probation for three years. And as Ralph said, I don't think that he, I mean, I think he got away uh, pretty cheaply there. I think that he deserved a greater fine and uh, more jail time, actually. Yeah, that's one of those things that you just don't joke about ever. Ever. Nope. No. This wasn't even a joke it, so much as he really just didn't want to miss his flight. So for some reason, he thought this would be a way to delay it. I mean, that's just really poor judgment. Very poor judgment. I mean, you know, he didn't miss his flight. He did not. Although the flight didn't operate because... But everyone else did. Yeah. So, yeah. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Oh, you know what? I just realized I skipped number 14. I did not mean to skip this one. Oh, okay. Derek, I don't know if you had a chance to meet Derek at the uh, Sarsen Stones. I think Uh, I just met everyone. I hope I met Derek. Yeah, I think you met Derek. He's a wonderful guy. He says, hi, guys. Derek from the UK, Sussex here. Just a quick bit of feedback. So pleased to finally meet you all at the Fombra meetup at the Sarsen Stones. It was a great night, and we agree. 
Two years ago, I missed the meetup due to traffic congestion getting out of the air show. Hope all of your journeys home were as smooth as possible. Thanks for all your hard work in making the show so successful. And look forward to meeting up again, hopefully in two years' time. Derek. And as I said, Derek, it was a pleasure meeting you. And I'm glad you had a good time and look forward to uh, meeting up with you again. Absolutely. Glad the traffic god smiled upon you this time. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah. The traffic did seem a bit smoother this time around, didn't it? It did. It seems like they managed They're Yeah, I think they they put a little bit more thought into managing the traffic this time. Unlike Riyadh, right, uh, Nick and Nigel? Oh, well, we couldn't even get out of the car park. That was the problem. Once we got out of the car park, we're fine. But yeah, that was a mess. I don't know how many thousand cars suddenly descended en masse to one exit point, And guess what's going to happen? If you're at the back of the queue like we were. Yeah, it was, and it was hot, and it was just, uh, yeah, it was not a good situation. But I can't think of a, uh, you know, two two people I'd rather be in a car for two hours waiting to get out of a parking lot, though, than Nick and Nigel. <laughs> two two blokes bickering. <laughs> two and singing. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was yeah. a different time, though. The singing. Oh well. Thing. Yeah. You should have asked for more. We singing. weren't. We weren't in a singing mood. I can tell you I that. <laughs> There's actually more to the stories than that. Uh, I'm sure Nick was real hot under the collar. I was trying to keep my cool. Everyone else was making smart comments about which way we should be going. But I was not saying a thing. We were more or less stuck. Yeah. Yes, we were. Anyway. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for 334. Yeah. Nick, thanks thanks for staying up so late. What time is it now for you? Midnight. Uh, it's only midnight, actually. Oh, it's not it's too just bad. That I, I woke real early this morning, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Well, I uh, I thank you. We all thank you for uh, hanging in there with us. I know it's not optimum no for you to do it this late in the day, but this was just the best opportunity for us to do the show this week, and uh, I'm glad it worked out. And uh, thank you, uh, Dana, for taking time out of your layover, and Steph for taking time out of your day to join me to do the show and all of you in the live chat room. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Um, We really appreciate your support. And uh, speaking of support, if you want to support us financially, again, that's the uh, coffee fund, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. The website is a great place for you to go to learn more about the show. We have uh, apps for iOS and Android information about that on the website as well. And we're on social media, right, Steph? We are. We are on Twitter. You can point your browser over to twitter.com and we are at APG Crew. Interact with all of us there and find our individual Twitter information uh, pinned to the top of that page. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Interact with community members there. Uh, you can post links to aviation related things, uh, engage in conversation, sometimes learn about meetup uh, opportunities and generally have a nice time. Absolutely. And we're also on Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel 
and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, one one Echo one And see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel, for that. And uh, hope everybody has a great week. And look forward to seeing you again next time on the Airline Pilot Guy Show. And wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Goodbye, everybody. Good day.